When the Lights Go On Again, Chapter 16 They left Tony alone for what felt like several hours. The cell was dark, but not completely pitch black. After a few minutes, his eyes adjusted, and the tiny lines of light from the narrow grill set up high into the cell's door gave him just enough illumination to see the dim outline of his shackled hands and the cramped dimensions of his cell. It was an awful lot like Afghanistan, with the exception that this time he wasn't injured and in pain. Yet. Tony sat on the concrete floor, his hands in his lap. He could do little else with them, thanks to the restraints, and tried to distract himself from what he knew was coming. He spent the first hour doing a mental overview of the new redesign for his armor, the suit he'd spent the last several months designing and finessing, the one he was going to build himself, if by some lucky chance, he survived this. He spent the second hour thinking about Steve, and the hours after that. Not the sex. He was saving those memories for later, when he might need them more. He thought of Steve's letters, of the handful of sentences he'd managed to memorize from them, of the look on Steve's face when Tony had said goodbye to him at the hotel of sparring with Steve both physically during training sessions and verbally at Avengers meetings, of fighting next to Steve during the escape from one police plaza and all the times before that. He was in the middle of remembering the party they'd had after they'd defeated Kang the Conqueror the first time, only two weeks after Steve had first joined the team. He'd spent almost every off-duty hour reading archived issues of the New York Times that first month. And Tony had to haul him away from the computer, where he was unsuccessfully trying to use a CD-ROM of digitized newspaper clippings Tony had made for him in order to get him to attend. When his cell door opened, and an Argonian officer stepped in, Tony stayed motionless, refusing to look up or otherwise acknowledge the alien's presence. They would make him talk eventually, he knew, but he wasn't about to make it easy for them. Wait until the interrogation got serious, until the pain started and then he could break. Give them the story he and Hank worked out to distract them from the fact that the delivery mechanism for the poison was the water. If he made it too easy, they wouldn't believe him. And they were smart enough they just might discover what was happening on their own if their attentions weren't directed elsewhere. They would get the true story out of him, too, eventually. But he had to make sure he lasted long enough that that wouldn't matter. 36 hours. He just had to hold out. For 36 hours. Tony Stark, you are believed to have been killed. What explanation do you have for your desertion? Tony's head snapped up, and he blinked at the warrior in surprise. English? She was speaking English. It was our Captain Kamami, he saw, not Mamitu, whose jurisdiction escaped human prisoners ought to have fallen under. I didn't think any of you knew English, he blurted out. The ability to speak your language has proven useful, she said mildly. I'll bet it has, Tony thought. Steve had been wondering where the Argonians had been getting their intelligence. Tony would have placed a not insignificant bet that he was speaking to the head of their intelligence network now. A warrior who spoke English would be in perfect position to gather information on the resistance. Not only would the human guards be willing to speak to her, she could collect information both whatever information the Mechanicos gained from the captive or volunteer scientists, as well as information forced from random people on the street. Still, Argonian military rank and matters of jurisdiction were very strict, 
and Tony already fell within another officer's area of responsibility. Valuable information source or not. Where's our Captain Mamitsu? Shouldn't interrogating me be her job? Our Captain Mamitsu is dead, and you still have not answered my question. Dead? A smile would have been inappropriate, and it took real strength of will to keep one off his face. She must have died in the escape, possibly when the building burned. The rebels captured me, he said, trying to make it sound as if it had been a traumatic experience rather than the best twelve hours of his life. They made me leave with them. It took hours to free myself. They had me under guard. Her ears swiveled forward, and her huge black eyes stared at him intently. The rebels do not take prisoners. Why would they make an exception for you? She was limping, the bulk of bandages visible under her black uniform. Had she been present during the escape? Damn it. That would make this harder. How much did she already know? They used to be friends of mine, our captain. They were reluctant to kill me. She considered him for a moment, her tail swaying gently back and forth. Staring up at her looming over him was starting to make his neck ache. I would like to believe you, she said. I have been assured of your loyalty by a very trustworthy source. However, I cannot take that risk. Tony assured her of his loyalty again, for good measure, feeling almost sickened by how easily the groveling to Argonians came to him now. Their fight is futile, he told her. They have nothing to gain by resisting the Empire. Why would I go back to them? Why, indeed? Kamami asked, the end of her tail flicking gently back and forth. If you wish to prove your continued loyalty, you may start by telling me everything you know about the attack at the weapons facility. Leave nothing out. So, Tony told her. He told her about the explosions, about the power for the building being knocked out, neglecting to mention that he had caused said power outage himself, about the way the rebels had come sweeping in with assault rifles and caused as much destruction as possible. He left out everything he and Clint had done, of course, and as much information about the Avengers' specific powers and numbers as he could. She asked several more questions, making it obvious she knew at least one of the guards had been a traitor, and, wincing inwardly with self-disgust, Tony gave her Schultz and the Rhino. They were free, out of danger, and the rhino's betrayal in particular would have been too obvious for the Argonians to have missed. You don't miss a seven-foot gray behemoth charging at you and trampling you flat. When he had finished, Kamami nodded, her expression pleased. Then she said, And now you will tell me everything you know about the rebels, your impression of their numbers, the weapons you saw them carrying, their special abilities, the location of their hideout. Damn it! He'd known this was coming. They knocked me out when they captured me. He evaded. I woke up tied to a chair and blindfolded. I don't know where. Only two of them ever spoke to me. You escaped and found your way back here. You must know the route you followed to get here. He shook his head, then winced and touched his hand to his bruised face. I wish I did. I was still dazed from the blow to the head at first. I don't even know how I managed to escape. Her eyes narrowed speculatively. How can you be sure they didn't simply let you go? That you weren't allowed to return here for some purpose of their own? I don't. He tried to make it sound like a grudging admission, like confessing it pained him. I can't. I just knew I had to come back. I knew I would be safe from them here, 
A blatant lie, of course. But maybe the irony would distract her from wondering too hard about Steve's location. From them, yes. Unfortunately, not from us. For your sake, I hope you are telling the truth. It was spooky. She actually sounded sincere. What would lying gain me? Tony asked, not bothering to keep the fear he felt out of his voice. Focus on me, he begged silently. And whether or not you can trust me, forget about them. I know what you do to scientists who lie, to traitors. Why would I come back if I was one? Your species is not incapable of valor. If you are truly on the rebels' side, and believed you could help them gain some advantage by sacrificing yourself, they think I'm a traitor, he interrupted, wanting to cut that line of inquiry off as quickly as possible. They wouldn't take my help even if I were stupid enough to offer it. Kamami's ears went back, and it was only then that Tony realized, with a sinking sensation, that he had just interrupted an Argonian. Worse, a highly ranked Argonian warrior, months of practice at being carefully and pointedly subservient, had apparently been completely erased by a few hours with his teammates. Kamami's blow was so quick that he didn't see it coming, had no chance to prepare himself for it the way he had with Steve. There was an instant of star-shot darkness when he hit the floor, knocked backwards by the force of the blow. And then Tony was blinking dizzily at the metal ceiling and wondering vaguely how he was going to sit up again with his arms bound like this. Sitting up just using his stomach muscles, he decided, was going to hurt, given the way his ribs ached. You will show proper respect when you speak to me, our Captain Kamami said, in a surprisingly gentle voice. I don't want to have to do that again. No, Tony said, trying to blink away the remainder of the dizziness. Definitely don't want that. He couldn't help smiling a little. Of all the things to get hit for, talking out of order was probably the silliest and most innocuous reason you could ask for. Which didn't mean it hadn't hurt, or that pulling himself back up into a seated position didn't send a sharp twinge of pain through his side. My apologies, our captain, he managed, when he was sitting upright again. I meant no disrespect. There was a moment of silence, and then the questioning resumed. Kamami apparently having decided to accept the apology. Even if you do not know their location or numbers, you can at least provide us with more information regarding their abnormal abilities. I am surprised my predecessor never sought such information from you, considering your past connection with them. What was he supposed to say? Telling them the truth was out of the question. Any piece of information about the Avengers' powers or fighting abilities was a weapon they could use against them. But silence would be too suspicious. If he were truly cooperative, he would tell them everything he knew. Maybe he could lie? No. They had seen at least some of his teammates' powers at work. Kamami already knew some of the answers she was asking for, and without knowing how much information she already possessed, Tony couldn't spin a credible lie. Mami too, Tony was fairly certain, had only been vaguely aware of his existence, had considered him interchangeable with all the other scientists. He had been grateful for it. Questions about his relationship with the Avengers would have made it much harder to maintain his cover. However, it wasn't until this moment that he'd realized just how much of a blessing her indifference had been. Kamami obviously had a level of patience that Mamitu lacked. The other our captain would have been beating answers out of him by now. Which is what he'd been prepared for. What could he tell her? What 
I asked you a question, Tony Stark. How much do you know about your former associate's combat abilities? Betraying Steve, betraying them all, was out of the question. Death would be better than that. Since his cover was about to be blown no matter what he did, Tony decided he might as well go with snide and unhelpful. It had always worked wonders with the Mandarin. Sorry, he said, offering Kamami the widest grin his bruised and swollen face could manage. Can't help you there. Her eyes narrowed, and one ear flicked back. Wrong answer, she said. The cell she was locked in was exactly ten feet long and six feet wide, just enough room for Wanda to pace back and forth. She had been locked in smaller places before, darker places too. At least this cell had a little grating in the door that let a tiny glow of violet light in. The Argonians must not realize how complete darkness affected most humans. Otherwise, she was sure, the cell would have been pitch black. There were sanitary facilities in one corner, but beyond that, her metal prison was completely barren and empty. No bed, not even a blanket, just metal walls and a bare concrete floor. She wouldn't have minded that, or the dim light, or even the fact that the only food they gave her was some kind of tasteless mush, and only twice a day at that, so that she was always hungry. If only she could still access her powers. The Argonians had clearly designed this cell with her in mind. The force shield around it cut her off from her chaos power as if it had never been there, as if she were only a normal human. She would dearly love to know how they had known enough about the exact nature of her powers to be able to block them. She had been in here for nearly a week, and that time not one of her captors had entered her cell or even spoken with her through the door. Twice a day they flipped the grill in the door up and thrust food and water through it, but even then they remained silent. She had tried to speak to them, but none of them ever answered. They wouldn't tell her where Pietro was. They wouldn't tell her what they wanted from her. She had expected to be interrogated, even tortured. Instead, she was ignored. She had finally realized, from the excessive care shown by the visibly skittish guards when they fed her, that they were afraid of her. Who knew what they thought of her powers? Argonians didn't seem to have anything comparable to mutants, and she had no idea whether or not they believed in magic. Maybe they had just heard about what she had done to the Argonian patrol in the warehouse district. That would be enough to make anyone fear her. At first, she had expected to be dragged out of her cell and executed at any moment. They didn't want information from her, so why else would they be keeping her around if not to stage some kind of bloody public execution? But by the fourth day, she was starting to doubt that as well. The best explanation she could come up with was that they were using her as bait, hoping to lure the other Avengers into a trap. It wouldn't work, of course. Not as long as they kept her under Grand Central. Even Steve wouldn't try to storm the Argonians' main stronghold for the sake of two people. If he had been, they would have had Clint and Tony out months ago. When the door opened, on the sixth day, the sudden flood of light was almost blinding. Wanda climbed slowly to her feet, blinking in the harsh, violet glare, determined that she would not meet her executioners on her knees. The violet glow of the shield covered the entire doorway. Standing just beyond it was an Argonian warrior, with a smaller, gray-clad Argonian hovering respectfully at his elbow. She wanted to scream at them, to throw herself at them, and tear them apart with her bare hands, to make them tell her what they had done to her brother. But there would have been no point to it. 
If it was possible for her to get through the shield, they wouldn't be standing so confidently there on the other side of it, with the door wide open. Gentlemen, she said, offering them her best smile. To what do I owe this honor? I thought you had forgotten about me. Don't wait for them to speak first, Steve had told her once. Take control of the conversation if you can. He had taught her more over the years than just how to fight. The Argonian warriors snarled something, and the smaller Argonian stepped forward slightly and said, in surprisingly good, if accented English, You will address the Imperator with respect. The Imperator? First they ignored her for nearly a week, and then they sent their military dictator to speak to her personally? Wanda raised her eyebrows. And if I don't? she asked. Then he will kill you, it said. I suggest you be respectful. Wanda blinked. Was that humor? From an Argonian? The Imperator said something else. His tone less of a snarl, but still sharp with contempt. He was massive, nearly seven feet tall, and his black uniform was festooned with copper braiding. He was nowhere near as impressive-looking as Kang, Wanda told herself. Nowhere near as powerful, either. Really, how frightening was an intergalactic warlord who couldn't even time travel? The Imperator wants to know what your people have done, the translator said. Defended our planet. She didn't know which specific piece of resistance activity they were referring to, but that pretty much covered everything. The Imperator's eyes narrowed, and he said something cold and brief. This planet belongs to the Argonian Empire now, the translator informed her. Answer the Imperator's question before he becomes angry. You do not want him to treat you the way he did the other human. Wanda's stomach lurched. Which other human? she asked. The Imperator's ears perked up in a pleased fashion when the translator relayed this. We have already questioned your companion, the unnaturally swift one. He chose not to speak to us. Perhaps he will be wiser. He gave the translator an order and the smaller Argonian produced a metal box from within his gray lab coat and handed it to him. The Imperator opened the box and angled it towards Wanda, letting her see what was inside it. A severed human finger. It was a man's finger, pale and bloodless and anonymous. It could have belonged to anyone. She knew it was Pietro's. I will not be sick, she told herself. I will not be sick. She couldn't let them see how much the sight of her brother's mutilated finger upset her. They had cut it off of him. That was a piece of Petro in that box, where they would try to use it to their advantage, use it as an excuse to torture him further. Lovely, she managed after a moment. She could hear her voice shaking. Are you going to cut off my fingers if I don't tell you what you want to know? The translator shook his head. That would mean lowering the shield, and we know better than to make that mistake. The Imperator spoke once more, and the translator's ears twitched. He added, If you do not answer his questions, the Imperator will have another of your companion's fingers cut off. Then another. Then he will proceed to larger pieces. Then, if you still prove uncooperative, you will be executed, both of you. Wanda swallowed, feeling cold and sick. In that moment she hated them, hated all the Argonians, so much that if it hadn't been for the shield between them, she would have triggered an explosion in the Imperator's plasma gun and let them both go up in a nuclear fireball. What do you want to know? She asked quietly. The translator regarded her steadily, his ears low and his tail drooping to coil around his feet. He didn't look happy. He couldn't possibly be as unhappy as Wanda was. 
Both warriors and mechanicos have been stricken with an unidentifiable illness. It strikes everyone alike, warriors as well as mechanicos, the healthy as well as the wounded and ill, and leaves them terribly weakened. Several have already died. The only people who have not been affected are the human guards, prisoners, and laborers. What have your people done to us? Wanda laughed. She could hear the hysteria in her voice. I don't know, she told him. I don't know. They were getting sick, and they blamed it on the resistance? Was it pure paranoia? Or did Steve, Carol, and the others actually have something to do with it? You've had me locked up in here for a week. You landed on an alien world. Maybe it's the common cold. Maybe you're all catching our planet's viruses and bacteria and dying. It wasn't the answer they wanted, of course. She couldn't give them that, even if she'd been willing to sell humanity out to them. She couldn't tell what she didn't know. Perhaps it really was some human virus, crossing the species barriers like an avian flu. The translator repeated her words to the Imperator, and one of his ears flicked back, his tail lashing angrily. "'I can see you have decided not to be helpful,' he said. "'Perhaps your companion is feeling more cooperative now that he's had some time to bleed.' He stepped backward, away from the cell's doorway, and gestured imperiously. One of the guards swung the door shut. It made a dull, metallic sound as it closed, and Wanda was in near dark again. "'We will be back,' the translator's voice came through the open grill. "'If you don't answer his questions then, you will be killed in an extremely unpleasant manner.' The metal box closed now and pushed through the opening, falling to the cement floor with a loud clatter. "'Please,' the translator whispered. "'Tell him what he wants to know next time. "'People are dying.' "'Then the girl was shut, and Wanda was left alone, "'staring at the innocuous-looking little box that held Pietro's finger. "'She couldn't answer them. "'She couldn't answer them, and they were going to torture Pietro to death because of it. "'Over a virus.' "'Hank had only thought that it took a long time to find the water filtration system.' What actually took a long time was finding his way down into what Clint had described as the mad scientist basement. The immense levels of security posed little problem at two inches tall, but the sheer amount of time it took to move around at this size was maddening. The converter room was utterly massive. Hank suspected it would have been huge even if he weren't so small, and the air had that cool, slightly damp feel he associated with caves a sign of just how far underground it was. The walls were bare rock. You could actually see the marks on them where stone had been hewn or blasted away. Hank tried not to think about what it would be like to be stuck down here for four months. There were no ants down here, either because of the depth or because the Argonians had killed them with something. There were literally tons of rock between Hank and the surface, more than enough to completely cut off his helmet signals, he needed to finish his business down here quickly, and then get back above ground, where he could signal Spider-Man. Tony had told him to look for Dr. Connors once he got underground, that the former supervillain was a mole working for the Kingpin. In what was probably Hank's first major stroke of luck since getting into the station, Connors was not difficult to find. Six-foot-tall crocodile men tended to stand out in a crowd. Connors had been a perfectly normal man back when Hank had originally known him. Hank's Ph.D. had been so recent in those days that the ink on his diploma had barely dried, and Kurt Connors had been a legend in the field. He'd never done much work with invertebrates, but Hank had read all of his articles anyway. 
he published more infrequently these days. Several of the major scientific journals wouldn't print your work if you'd ever done a stint on Rikers Island, which Hank had always thought was incredibly short-sighted of them from a scientific perspective, no matter how honorable a moral stance it might be. Hank peered upward from his hiding space behind one of the legs of Connor's workbench and waited for the other scientists to come close enough to hear him. "'Down here,' he called, just loud enough for the words to carry to Connor's and no one else. "'Tony Stark sent me, and the Kingpin too, I suppose.' Fisk hadn't been consulted regarding their plan, but no doubt he'd been informed of it by now, and since it involved potential gain for him while all the risk was absorbed by the Avengers, he was probably thrilled by it. Connor started. Then he deliberately knocked a pair of forceps off his workbench and crouched down, peering at Hank with golden eyes, his vertical pupils narrowed. Lang, he hissed, almost inaudibly. What are you doing here? You have a little girl. Hank pulled off his Ant-Man helmet and shook his head. It's Hank Pym, he corrected. Last I heard, Scott Lang was still in California. Pym, of course. Connors blinked, both sets of eyelids flickering. I should have known Stark was undercover. He was working with Hawkeye, I imagine. Hank nodded. I don't have much time, he said. I have to get over to the shield device, then back up to the surface. But before I do, Tony wanted me to give you this. He pulled a tiny piece of circuitry out of one of the pockets on his belt, set it on the ground, and regrew it to its original size. Have someone solder it to the control lock on Octavius's arms. It should deactivate it. Connors blinked again. Thank you, he breathed. That's exactly what we need. Then he shook his head ever so slightly and sighed. Even with Octavius active again, I'm not sure we can break out of here successfully. Some of the others can't even walk anymore. We would have to leave them, and I won't... Don't worry about it. Hank interrupted. He won't have to. He grinned up at Connors, feeling a swell of pride even though the disruptor chip was Tony's work and not his. The Avengers are coming in to get you. Connors did not look reassured, and Hank wondered for a moment if he ought to be offended on his team's behalf. Half his task down here completed, Hank moved on to the next part. The shield's power source was under heavy guard, of course, but no one noticed you when you were the size of an insect. Slipping through the cordon of Argonian warriors was easy, and then Hank found himself staring up at the power core itself. It was one of the more impressive things Hank had seen recently, a giant glowing ball of blue fire that gave off no heat whatsoever. If anything, the air was actually slightly cooler the closer he got to it. It almost made tears come to Hank's eyes. Actual cold fusion! And he wasn't even a physicist. Damn it, Tony was right. The fact that the Argonians had had the capacity to design and build something like this and then lost it was a tragedy. When he climbed silently up the side of the big blocky control console to find a familiar dome of violet energy covering the various buttons and toggles that would have allowed him to manipulate or shut down the shield, his eyes really did almost tear up. Steve had been counting on the shield going down, on being able to rely on the falcon and shield showing up to join the fight. Hank swore inwardly, 
and kicked the top of the console as hard as he could. He could tell just by listening to the faint hum that emanated from the mini-shield that its frequency fluctuated just as the big shields did. There was no way to destroy it or go through it, and even if he'd had some form of jamming equipment with him, he wouldn't have been able to pin the frequency down in order to properly block it. The Argonians must have some kind of mechanism for turning it on and off, but Hank had no idea what it was or where to find it, and he couldn't afford to stay down here any longer. He was pushing his luck as it was. The temptation to go a little closer and poke at the force field just in case he was suddenly magically able to reach through it was overwhelming, but the mental image of the energy frying him like some kind of alien bug zapper was enough to bring Hank to his senses. Plus, touching it would probably set off some kind of alarm. Well, at least he'd accomplished two-thirds of what Tony had sacrificed himself for. The journey back upstairs took even longer than the trip down, and as hard as Hank tried not to feel like a failure, he couldn't help but picture the carnage that was going to result tomorrow, when the Avengers stormed Grand Central without Fury's helicarrier for backup. What did your people do to us? The alien repeated. We know you know something. Even if I did, Pietro sneered, what makes you think I'd tell you? Its eyes narrowed, and its oversized ears twitched back. Because you want to keep the rest of your fingers, it suggested. Pietro couldn't quite conceal his flinch. The pain of the Argonian short sword slicing through the joint of his little finger had been blinding. The crunching sound of severed bone had been even worse. I've told you repeatedly that I don't know, he snapped. Your species intelligence is clearly overrated. No wonder you have to kidnap humans to do your work for you. The second Argonian, the big one, who didn't speak English and growled orders in their alien tongue to the one who did, punched Pietro in the stomach, knocking all the air out of his lungs. For a long, sickening second, he couldn't breathe at all. He simply hung there, muscles twitched spasmodically as his body tried to curl into a ball, prevented from doing so by the restraints that fastened him spread-eagled to the cell wall. His legs wouldn't hold him up, knees going weak, and the added weight on his arms made his shoulders scream. When he finally managed to suck in another breath, there were tears in his eyes. Pietro rapidly blinked them away and sneered at his two interrogators. I don't know, he repeated, as slowly and clearly as he could, the tone he reserved for speaking to people who were especially stupid and irritating. The plasma burn on his left thigh throbbed in time with his heartbeat. His hand was a blaze of agony, and even when he managed to get his right leg back under himself, his left leg wouldn't hold his weight. It wasn't healing the way it should. He was so hungry and thirsty that he felt lightheaded, and it was affecting his body's ability to recover. Do not insult the Imperator, the smaller alien said. It sounded as if the very notion of insulting its precious warlord scandalized it. You are nothing to him. Pietro was already well acquainted with that fact. He'd figured out that mutant lives were meaningless to them when he had watched Madripoor burn. Human lives in general meant nothing to Argonians. He was glad they were falling victim to some mysterious epidemic. Let them all die. They deserved to drop like flies. What have you done with my sister? He forced out through gritted teeth. He had asked the same question over and over without getting a response, but Pietro had never believed in giving up or giving in. He tried not to imagine the Argonians using their knives on Wanda hacking off pieces of his sister's flesh, her delicate hands, her feet, 
her. How many people does your organization have within our ranks? What are their names? I don't know, Petra repeated. A lot. You're going to lose. We'll make you pay for all the mutant blood you've spilled. All the innocent blood you've spilled. They liked that answer as little as they'd liked the previous one. Pietro closed his eyes and gritted his teeth as the big Argonian ground the hilt of its sword into the burn on his leg. He wasn't going to give them the satisfaction of hearing him scream. What are their names? The little Argonian repeated. Are you going to take a shot at me too if I don't answer, or do you just like to watch? It had seemed visibly uncomfortable earlier, when they had cut his finger off. Now it was glaring at him like he had personally offended it. The Imperator is very skilled with a blade, it said. It is always a pleasure to watch skill in action. It leaned forward until it was inches away from Pietro's face and he could smell the musky sweet scent of its fur. It was an animal scent, inhuman, and it made the hair on the back of Pietro's neck stand up. I don't like watching people suffer, even lesser species, but for you, I will make an exception. Your people kidnapped a friend of mine, and now he is being tortured because the Imperator cannot trust him after you contaminated him. Its massive black eyes were fixed on Pietro's face. He could see his own reflection in them, a pale blur. He suffers because of you, so you can suffer too. Friend? Pietro frowned, confused. The lingering dizziness didn't help. The stump of his severed finger was still bleeding. The wound reopened when the big Argonian had slammed his hand against the wall earlier, and his ears were starting to buzz. We haven't captured any of you things. We don't take prisoners. Unless Cap's people had captured an Argonian after Pietro and Wanda had been taken. He couldn't remember how long they had had him anymore. It was difficult to keep track of time when the light never changed and they kept hitting you, and he had lost count of the days. What have your people done to us? The Argonian repeated. Poison? Biological warfare? What? Nothing, Pietro told it. It's your own fault for invading an alien planet. Your immune systems are clearly just inferior to ours, even to those of less evolved humans. This time, he did scream. When he had gotten his breath back and hung, half sobbing from his wrists, his legs completely strengthless now, the smaller Argonian informed him prissily that humans were the inferior species. Everyone it seemed, was inferior to Argonians. Inferior. Pietro's lips twitched, in spite of the pain and the roaring in his ears. They didn't even have powers. The scroll or the Cree would eat them alive. They hadn't even noticed the inhuman city on the moon when they had stopped there on their way to Earth, because their instruments hadn't been sophisticated enough to detect it. Pietro was intimately familiar with arrogance and xenophobia. He firmly believed that arrogance was justified when you really were superior, which was why Crystal's eventual rejection of him and her family's refusal to accept him had hurt so much. Because it was true. Because compared to the genetically perfect in humans, Homo superior was as crude and unevolved as an ordinary Homo sapiens was to a mutant. Too inferior for them to bother helping them, even when he had begged. And he had begged. After Madripoor. They had had no right to reject Luna. She was as perfect as they were with Crystal's genes, even without passing their barbaric tests. It didn't matter that she didn't have his ex-gene. She was still far and away superior to normal humans. Luna, he reminded himself. 
Luna is why you're doing this. Wanda is why you're doing this. He wasn't going to talk to them anymore, Pietro decided. He wasn't going to give them anything else, no matter what they did to him. They weren't worth his attention. Chapter 17 The sleek copper and silver device Imperator Nergal was holding looked like a far nicer piece of welding equipment than the miniature arc welder Tony had to make do with when he'd worked on their engines and missiles. It wasn't welding equipment, though. Not the right shape. And he could tell from the color of the blue glow at the business end of the thing that it wasn't quite hot enough to melt most metal alloys properly. Then the Imperator touched the welding tool. Branding iron. Tony's brain corrected. To the center of his chest. And Tony stopped caring that it was a better quality piece of equipment than the ones they'd been giving him. The pain was blinding. A searing hot cold fire that seemed to eat straight through his chest into his heart. It didn't stop when the Imperator pulled the branding iron away. His chest felt as if it was still being burned. Pain that made sweat break out along his sides and throbbing in time with his too fast heartbeat. And Tony suddenly found himself hoping that his heart was going to be able to stand up to this. Franklin Richards had remade them all, after Onslaught. But Tony's scars were still there on the outside, and it was anybody's guess how much hidden damage still lingered inside his chest. Tony hung limply in the chains and tried to catch his breath again. His throat felt raw, though he didn't remember screaming, and he had to swallow several times before he could speak. Pick someplace else next time, he managed to gasp. I, I have enough scars there. Kamami didn't bother to translate that. Just repeated the Imperator's question. Our people began to fall ill after you returned. This is not a coincidence. Lots of things. Coincidences. Tony closed his eyes and let his head fall forward, dizzy and sick and still unable to get his breath properly. Two of his ribs were cracked, the same two that had been broken when they'd captured him. And with his weight hanging from his arms like this, every breath sent a stab of pain through his side. One more unlucky blow to the torso from his captors. And he wouldn't have to worry about having another heart attack. He would suffocate or drown in blood from punctured lungs before his heart had a chance to give out. A big furry hand, warmer than a human's, grabbed him by the hair and pulled his head up. Look at the Imperator when he speaks to you, Tony Stark, Kamami said. Her voice was still mild, calm. Did she ever get angry? Her cool, impersonal tones were almost worse than shouting and insults would have been. People were supposed to shout at you and insult you when they hurt you, and occasionally rant at length about how they were going to make you pay for ruining their plans for world domination, or for leaving them, or not being good enough, or... Tony dragged burning and watering eyes open and blinked a few times until the Imperator's expression of utter contempt came back into focus. The rebels took me, he said, for what must have been the two dozenth time. Then I escaped. Maybe they planted something on me. I don't know. Can't break too soon, he reminded himself. When the Imperator raised the branding iron again, it had to look good, had to look real. He needed to keep this up just a little longer. Longer. How long had it been since he came back? 
a couple of hours, half a day, longer. He had passed out at least once, after the blow from the Imperator's tail had rebroken his ribs. Time didn't seem to flow properly anymore. He tried to concentrate on Steve, as the little loop of blue fire touched his chest again, on Steve's hands on him, Steve's mouth, the smell of his skin, the taste of him. When Tony had bent down and taken Steve in his mouth, the white-hot pain lanced through him, and Tony didn't scream this time. It just made a choked-off sound through his clenched teeth as his body arched away from the wall, all his muscles locking. Had to remember not to bite his tongue. He would have to talk eventually, and he couldn't do that if, if he bit through his tongue. Steve's hands in his hair, fingers tightening against his skull, as Tony rolled his tongue across the hardening length of him and gave inward thanks to the makers of the Super Serum for including endurance on their list of physical qualities to perfect. Tony swallowed, taking the entire length of Steve into his mouth with the ease of long practice and a naturally weak gag reflex. Then Steve made a low groan in the back of his throat and... Different kind of pain this time. The Imperator's tail blade drew a long, cool line across his ribs, and it took almost an entire second before the pain flared up and warm blood began to run down his skin. This was easier than burns, Tony decided. Less likely to kill him than the beating. He could do this. You're only hurting yourself by lying. Warriors and mechanicals have died, Tony Stark. More will die if you are not honest with us. You swore your loyalty to the Archon. You worked beside our mechanicals for months. Surely you have enough honor to help them now? Steve's body grinding up against his. Steve's fingers gripping his hips with bruising force, sweat covering both of them, and Steve's skin glowing in the lantern light, and... Loyalty. Honor. Gruenwald had said he had neither, but he didn't know anything about Tony. Not anything important. He was an Avenger. Avengers didn't betray their teammates. Didn't betray humanity. He hoped Izimud hadn't died. Maybe he was only a little sick. Tony ground his teeth and hissed as the Imperator made another cut. At least he wouldn't be here long enough for any of the wounds to get infected. God knew what kind of germs that blade had on it. Not lying, he forced out. His jaw clenched tight enough that it felt like his teeth were going to crack. The Imperator's branding iron hit him directly over the heart this time, and his whole body convulsed. Agony stabbing through his ribs and arms and spearing him directly through the heart. Couldn't breathe, couldn't see, couldn't... Knew this would happen. It is unfortunate that I could not conduct this interrogation myself, without assistance. Something brushed his face gently, and Tony moaned, turning his head away from the touch. Ah, good. You are not dead. Oh, thanks to you and your sadistic boss, our captain, Tony thought. He tried to say as much but all that came out was a sort of whimpering gasp that didn't sound at all like a sound an Avenger ought to make. He kept his eyes closed, just concentrating on breathing and tried to think, tried to remember the story he and Hank had worked out. Bits of it kept sliding out of his grasp, the details slippery and vague. If he didn't give them the information soon, he might not be able to do it at all, and with nothing to misdirect them, they would have to figure out that it was the water making them sick. It was too obvious a source for them not to. And maybe if he told them something, anything, they would leave him alone for a little while. 
Then he could pass out, and all of this would go away. His chest felt like there were iron bands inside it, and getting enough air to speak took several gasping breaths. Stop, he panted. Please, st stop, I can't. He broke off, shuddering and breathing as deeply as he could, as a wave of pain hit him. I'll tell you. I'll tell you everything. Just stop. The words were far too easy to say, despite the fact that they were lies. And Tony felt tears well up in his closed eyes. He squeezed them shut more tightly, and the tears stopped. I can't. I, please. There was a long moment of silence, but the branding iron and its accompanying electric shocks didn't touch him again. Tony opened his eyes, his eyelids feeling unnaturally heavy, and squinted at Kamami and the Imperator, both of them were staring at him. "'Do you know why we are falling ill?' Kamami asked, her voice gentle and almost kind. "'Yes,' Tony admitted. He let his eyes close again. It would be better to keep them open, to watch their reactions to his words. But he didn't have the energy. What is causing the illness?' "'A virus,' Tony said letting the exhaustion and vertigo that swamped him color his words and hoping they would take it for defeat. Airborne. I released it in the lobby when the guards brought me in. The blow slammed his head back against the metal wall and made bright lights flash behind his closed eyes. There was blood in his mouth again, and he felt down a wave of nausea. Being sick while hanging from his arms would be bad. Vomiting with broken ribs would also be bad a level of misery he never wanted to experience again, and especially not right now. Steve. Too late, he mumbled, making an effort to smile as best he could with his split and swollen lips. Too many people have been exposed. You can't stop it now. The Imperator hit him again, and all the pain went away. The 42nd Street entrance to Grand Central was both more and less heavily guarded than Steve had expected. A dozen Argonians with ray guns were at their posts in front of and to either side of it, and Ben Grimm took a glancing hit to the arm from one of them that barely left a scorch mark on his rocky skin. Beyond that, they put up little resistance. Four of them fought with the dangerous speed and skill Steve had grown accustomed to, but the rest were slow and obviously off their game. Thank you, Hank, he thought, as he slammed his shield into an Argonian's face and it sagged limply to the ground. You did it. This was exactly what they had needed, an edge that made up for the Argonian's advantage in numbers and firepower. One brief, nasty fight later, Steve and his team were inside the station, having sustained only two casualties, both former policemen, neither of them fatally injured. The huge arched ceiling was the same bright blue Steve remembered, and he wondered for a second what it had been like for Tony and Clint to spend all those months in enemy territory that had once been so familiar. Then more warriors were rushing them, this time augmented by black-uniformed humans, and he had no more time to think about anything but fighting and not getting killed. The sound of gunfire echoed off the stone walls and floor, deafeningly loud. Steve was almost glad for the noise. It made it harder to hear the human guards screaming when they were shot. 
Cherbourg had been like this, fighting in the streets of the town, sometimes house to house. He almost expected to look to his right and see Bucky instead of Clint, wielding an M-16 that ought to have had too much of a recoil for him with practiced skill and a bright, manic grin. He should have been able to look to his left and see Tony, to hear the whine of repulsor gauntlets firing next to him instead of more gunshots. Tony would be alive when they found him. He had to be. Steve raised his shield to block a ray gun blast and then ducked and rolled under a widely lashing tail, the poisonous black barb missing him by inches. Hank had given them all a vial of antivenom, but if Steve managed to get himself stabbed in the wrong place, the wound itself could be debilitating enough to take him down even without the poison. At least Ben was relatively indestructible, one person on his team whom he didn't have to worry about. Jan, Firestar, and Clint, though, were all too easily hurt. That was if anyone managed to get near Firestar. Steve could barely look at her straight on, the air around her glowing faintly and wavering from heat. Swords that came too close to her might simply melt. Ray gun blasts, on the other hand, wouldn't have that problem. Firestar, he shouted as he saw one of the human guards take aim with a ray gun he'd snatched from the hand of a fallen Argonian. Down! She went up instead, a bright flare of red against the high blue ceiling, and Steve threw his shield at the guard, knocking him to the floor. Firestar raised both hands and sent a stream of microwave energy downward, and suddenly swords and guns of the Argonians immediately beneath her were glowing red-hot. Steve reached up and caught his shield as it came spinning back toward him, and then he and Clint charged the suddenly disarmed aliens, Ben a massive and welcome presence at their backs, and then Steve was kicking, punching, dodging fists and tail barbs and the sledgehammer-like body blows with their tails that seemed to be a favorite Argonian hand-to-hand move. He had no idea where Jan was, couldn't look up to search for her without leaving an opening his opponents would be only too eager to exploit. He hooked an Argonian's feet out from under it with one foot, and backed that up with a simultaneous right to the jaw, watching it overbalance and hit the floor with satisfaction. Then another Argonian was on him, its claws scrabbling across the mail and leather of his costume, but this one was weak and slow, sick from Hank's poison, and Steve felt a sickening twist of guilt in his stomach as he knocked it unconscious with the hardest punch he could throw. Using his shield on this one would have been overkill. He caught a blur of motion and a flare of yellow light out of the corner of one eye, and mentally positioned Jan off to his left. She was still airborne, which at the very least meant that she couldn't be badly injured. He had no idea how long it took for them to completely take the main concourse, but when it was over, the entrance to the quarters and the staircase leading to the meridian were covered in Argonian and human bodies, and Steve had lost two men, one firefighter and one of the policemen who had been wounded entering the building. Both were clearly dead, the policemen sliced open from sternum to groin, and the fireman staring blindly up at the ceiling, with a black hole burned through his torso, right next to the 451 badge half the ex-fireman had begun wearing once Steve had started sending them out to set explosives and start fires near Argonian installations. 
There was blood all over the marble floor, bright red human blood and the deep purplish stuff Argonians bled when you cut them, like some horrible piece of modern art. Their blood was the most alien thing about them. It didn't even taste the way blood should taste, and Steve knew that intimately, because he had had it splattered all over his face when he'd cut an Argonian's throat at the Battle of George Washington Bridge. There was blood on his costume, too, a dark stain covering his thigh. He didn't know if it was human or Argonian. Red liquid on blue leather always looked purple. Clint was crouched next to the limp body of an Argonian, wiping the blood off the Argonian short sword he was holding on its black tunic. He must have taken the sword from one of them. I think I knew this guy, he said quietly, looking up at Steve. There was a smear of purple across his right cheek, almost the same color as the costume he'd used to wear. Then the lost look on his face vanished abruptly, to be replaced by a determined expression that reminded Steve painfully of Bucky. So, Clint went on more loudly, rising to his feet, what now? Now we do what we came here to do, Steve told him. Firestar? Yes. Firestar landed on the marble floor a few feet in front of him, the air around her body still shimmering with heat. Stay here and help hold the lobby. We're going to need a path back out of here when this is over. He turned and indicated a short, dark-skinned National Guard sergeant who had been with Carol's team at one police plaza the day before yesterday. You're in command, Sergeant Garcia. Firestar was barely out of her teens, still inexperienced, and since Vance's death, she had made killing Argonians a matter of personal vengeance. Command and personal vendettas didn't mix well. Sergeant Garcia nodded, looking for a moment as if he were about to salute. Steve was already turning to Carol. Time to split up. Remember, keep an eye out for Hank. Carol, Clint, Simon, and Spider-Man had been given the objective of searching out and destroying the controls and power source for the Argonian's shield and freeing the captive scientists who were imprisoned with it. If Hank, Spider-Man, and the various scientists and engineers Carol's team would hopefully be able to liberate weren't able to deactivate it, maybe Simon's special touch with electronics could do the trick. Or maybe they would, miraculously, be able to find Wanda and Tony in the lower levels and free them. The two of them could make short work of the shield device if they could only get close enough to it, Steve was sure. They would find them, he told himself, and they would still be alive when they did. Pietro, too. Steve wasn't giving up on any of his teammates. Carol nodded once. Let's go, people. She didn't look back to see if her team followed as she started toward the elevator Clint had pointed out for them on the station's floor plans. It hadn't been indicated in the plans Sam had dug up all those months ago, and he had been able to show the rest of the team the empty space where it ought to have been. Her team followed in her wake, Clint one step behind her, sword in one hand and gun in the other, and Spider-Man bringing up the rear, stepping carefully around the crumpled Argonian and human bodies on the floor, clearly trying to avoid stepping in their blood. He had probably never seen anything like this before the battle at one police plaza, and even that hadn't been as bloody as this. Let's see if any of these guys are willing to play take us to your leader. Ben rumbled, gesturing at the fallen Argonians and humans around them. 
The Argonians, Steve guessed, would not be forthcoming with the information. The human guard, who lay half-curled into a ball at the foot of the stairs, both hands pressed to a gunshot wound in his thigh, not from Clint, Clint had better aim, was eager to tell them where to go, in exchange for a pressure bandage and the promise that they wouldn't let Firestar burn him to death. The Campbell apartment, he said through gritted teeth as Steve wrapped the bandage around his thigh. The one with the painted ceiling and the balcony. I think it was part of some fancy hotel suite before, maybe a restaurant. And how? Jan asked, her voice calm and soothing, the same tone Steve had heard her use on Hank when he was on the edge of losing control. Do we get there? An alarm was sounding somewhere, blaring over the loudspeaker system that had once announced the arrival of trains and needlessly warned people that there was a gap between the train car and the platform. Hank could hear machine gun fire from the upper levels. He needed to get up there, to help the others. If the shield was still up when the attack occurred, Hank was supposed to rendezvous with the rest of the team to help them disable the shield's controls and free Tony, Wanda, and Pietro. Had it all sounded so simple two days ago, when he and Tony and the others had planned it. In practice, with uniformed Argonians streaming past his hiding place, swords and plasma guns drawn, shouts ringing off the underground level's low ceilings, it was a nightmare. Some of the Argonians were stumbling, slow, clearly sick and weak, but responding to the alarm anyway. Not enough. There should have been almost no one left standing, but Steve had insisted the levels of sodium ascorbate in the water be too low to be lethal. He should have pushed for higher levels. Shouldn't have listened. Argonians were tougher than humans. Hank hadn't been able to find Tony or Pietro, not specifically, but he'd located the section of subway platform where prisoners were being held. One of the square metal boxes the Argonians had erected to serve as cells had been completely encased in yet another purple force field. Hank was getting really, really tired of those goddamn things. In this instance, though, it was almost a stroke of luck, because he would bet money, and was probably betting his friends' lives, come to think of it, that that was where Wanda was being held. There had been armed guards surrounding all the cells, with a double guard on hers, so a solo rescue attempt would have been doomed to failure, especially since the guards had refused to all conveniently succumb to the city masquerade. The ingestion delivery method had been too imprecise, wasn't affecting everyone. So Hank had waited, biding his time until the others showed up. And now... If the chaos around him was any indication, they had. He probably should have been afraid, but all he felt was overwhelming relief. Standing around helplessly while the Argonians did things he probably couldn't even imagine to Tony had been driving him crazy. He had begun to feel as if they would never come, and he'd been halfway convinced that something had gone wrong with the signals he'd been sending Spider-Man, that his jury-rigged attempt to trigger Spider-Man's spider-sense had been a failure after all. But it had worked, and they were here, and now he just had to get to them. He really ought to have given himself the ability to fly as well. Jan could simply have stayed tiny and flown for the upper levels as quickly as a man could run. But he'd been the first person he'd tested the pin particles on, and his body had never accepted biological modifications as well as Jan's. He hadn't even been able to get himself to grow antennae, 
so wings had been out of the question. It made sense, when he thought about it. In most ant species, only the females had wings. Hank let himself return to normal size, using one of the numerous pillars in the entrance to the subway to hide himself from sight. He'd meant to keep going, to make himself as tall as the low ceiling would let him. Eight feet, maybe eight and a half, but his ears started to ring when he hit five foot ten, and he had to close his eyes and grab onto a column for a moment while he waited for the floor to stop tilting. Changing size burned through the body's energy as quickly as a low-level energy mutation did. That, combined with the fact that Hank hadn't had a real meal in over thirty-six hours, was starting to make him feel dizzy when he grew or shrank. Next time, he needed to plan this better. He should have brought something to eat with him, shrunken down and hidden in his pockets. He wasn't going to be much good in a fight like this. He didn't even have a gun. Then again, he'd never used guns before the Argonians had showed up. He'd never needed them. When the dizziness had faded, he forced himself to grow again, until his head nearly brushed the ceiling. Then he stepped out from behind the pillar and swatted the nearest Argonian out of his way. It went down in a heap, weakened by Hank's poison, and he ran for the stairs that would take him up into the station's lower concourse. He could hear gunfire and the sound of someone screaming. Human, not Argonian. Had the attack on the police station been like this? The others had been fighting the Argonians for months while he'd been sitting around in the basement being next to useless. A plasma blast struck one of the support pillars, just ahead of Hank, vaporizing a chunk of tile and concrete. He kept going, ignoring the sliver of towel that sliced a stinging line across his cheek and plowing forward through the dust-filled air. They might never find Tony and Wanda without his help, not in the warren of underground tunnels and subway platforms this place had. The team needed him, and Jan was up there, somewhere. He nearly ran straight over the Argonian officer at the foot of the steps. She was standing on the second step up, sword in hand. Hank swung at her, intending to knock her out with one solid blow to the skull, but she swayed backward with a speed and grace reminiscent of a snake's. This one hadn't ingested any of the poison, or not enough for it to matter. That was okay. He could still handle this. He'd just need to get her sword or plasma gun away from her, and the fight would be over. The alien dodged his next blow as well, but the follow-up punch with his left hand caught her in the torso. She folded up, her sword clattering to the floor as he struck downward at her left wrist with a precision Steve would have been proud of. Hank grabbed her by that wrist, holding her in place, and reached for the plasma gun still holstered at her waist. The heavy blow that slammed into his thigh confused him for an instant. He had one hand immobilized, and she was trying to use the other to try and block his access to the gun, and then the pain hit. Searing, burning pain immobilized his entire leg, as if someone had pumped acid into the muscle there. Her tail. He'd forgotten about the tail. His fingers closed around the butt of the plasma gun. Plasma guns did not make good weapons at point-blank range, he thought, a moment later, as the Argonian slid to the floor and Hank tried not to choke on the horrible stench of burned fur and seared meat. His hand and forearm were probably burned, but if they were, the pain was so minimal compared to the agony in his leg that it didn't register. 
He had about five minutes to inject himself with the anti-venom ampule in his pocket, or he'd be unconscious on the floor soon. Maybe worse. Clint had been taken down by a single scratch, and he could tell by the way his leg buckled under him when he tried to climb the steps that this was more than just a scratch. Hank stumbled over the dying Argonian and went sprawling, catching himself with both hands before he cracked his head on the steps. He fumbled the anti-venom ampule out of his pocket with shaking hands, his fingers feeling thick and clumsy. There was blood all over his right thigh. He couldn't inject it into the muscle there. The Argonian's tail barb had done too much damage for that. It would need stitches. A bandage. Hank jammed the needle into his left thigh, hoping he'd got it at the right angle, and depressed the plunger. It would work. He knew it would work. The tingling numbness in his face and hands and the hard, rapid pounding of his heart were shock. Adrenaline. Not Argonian venom. It wouldn't be affecting him this quickly in any case. He wrapped both hands around his leg, blood hot and wet against his hands, and lowered his forehead to them, closing his eyes and just trying to breathe, the pain pulsing with every beat of his heart. Serotonin caused smooth muscle contractions, intense pain, it wasn't actually life-threatening. didn't actually mean his leg had been flayed open. It just felt like that. He had no idea how long he stayed like that. But after a while, he realized that more Argonians would surely be coming soon, and that he didn't want to be huddled on the steps when that happened. He managed to pull himself upright again, using the stair rail for support, and started hauling himself up the stairs with it, his leg threatening to go out with every step. It still burned, would keep on burning until the anti-venom took effect. He was wheezing through his gritted teeth, he realized, as he reached the top of the steps, a repetitive, annoying sound that was almost a whimper. It hurt so badly that he had to fight down nausea, sweat prickling along his skin. He had left bloody handprints along the rail and the wall, long red smears like something from a murder scene. Good. The more his leg bled, the less venom would get into his system. The sound of the fight had stopped. Hank tried to go faster, knowing with a sickening lurch in his stomach that he was too late, that the Argonians had captured or killed the rest of the team, and all the non-powered resistance fighters they brought with them, killed and captured them all because Hank had spent the last ten or fifteen minutes collapsed in a stairwell whimpering over his leg. He was near the water filtration system he realized suddenly, only a few yards away from the entrance to the Metro-North platform the Argonians had converted to house at. Over a day and a half in here, and he'd ended up in the exact same place. It was cold up here. Why was it so cold up here? His leg went out from under him again, and this time, Hank's attempt to catch himself failed spectacularly. He hit the floor hard enough to knock the breath out of himself, cracking his chin on the cold marble, and the pain that went through his leg at the impact was blinding. There was a roaring noise in his ears, drowning out any other sound, and he wheezed desperately, trying to draw air back into his lungs. The anti-venom wasn't working, he thought, as everything started to fade out. Not fair. This was supposed to be his chance to help to save the day, to finally do something. And then... Jan. 
And then everything went gray and full of hollow echoes, and he wasn't thinking of anything anymore. You know, Spider-Man commented, bouncing on his toes slightly. It kind of feels like this thing ought to be playing music. Can you be serious for five minutes? Carol snapped. We're stuck in an elevator. Come on. You can't tell me that it doesn't make you think of elevator music. It does now, Clint muttered darkly. He was fidgeting with the hilt of his commandeered plasma gun in a way that boded ill for whomever would be waiting at the bottom of the elevator shaft. I like elevator music, Simon volunteered. You do? Spider-Man turned to stare at him. No one likes elevator music. When the elevator doors open, a bunch of heavily armed alien prison guards are probably going to try to kill us, Carol reminded them, as patiently as was possible under the circumstances. The fabric over Spider-Man's nose wrinkled. I'm sorry, I'm just trying to distract myself from the fact that five minutes ago, I was wading through alien blood. Deep breaths, Carol reminded herself. It's not his fault that he's twelve. And yelling wouldn't help anything. The service elevator that led to what Clint had described as the Mad Scientist Dungeon was large, clearly designed for moving freight and more than big enough for the four of them. It also descended extremely slowly, or maybe it only felt that way because they were going incredibly far down. She hated waiting. I go out first, she said, when Clint stiffened and shifted his weight to the balls of his feet in a way that meant they were probably about to reach the bottom. Simon, Clint, you're behind me. Spider-Man, I want you in the back. Nobody argued, not even Spider-Man. The doors opened silently, minus the little ding that the Waldorf Astoria's elevators always made, a discreet sound that managed to convey with only a few decibels that you were in a building more expensive than most people would ever be able to afford. Carol brought her submachine gun up. It was lucky she still had at least some of her super strength left, because otherwise trying to fire a fully automatic weapon from the hip would have been an exercise in futility and wildly uncontrolled sprays of bullets, and braced herself, finger hovering over the trigger. There was no one on the platform outside the elevator. Carol stepped cautiously out, already looking around for threats, and then froze as a plasma bolt splashed onto the rock wall just a few feet in front of her, melting a foot-wide section of the metal catwalk as it did so. She whipped up round, bringing the gun up again. Simon was a faintly glowing presence at her left now, and Clint was on the catwalk too, plasma gun out and ready and found herself staring down at chaos. About ten feet below them, gray-coated humans had surrounded a handful of black-clad humans and were trading punches with them, a confusing melee of dark and light fabrics. There were two dead Argonians on the concrete floor. One of them looked partially eaten, as if it had been ripped apart by some large carnivore. Damn, Clint said. I wish I'd been here when this started. Right on the heels of his words, a metal tentacle whipped out from behind one of the massive engine turbines that dominated the chamber and slammed an Argonian back into the side of the steps leading down from the catwalk so hard that the metal bent. There was a long, frozen moment while the Argonian, gray-uniformed, Carol saw, 
struggled weakly, and then the tentacle snatched it back out of sight again, so forcefully that she could actually hear the dull snapping sound as the alien's spine broke. Well, Spider-Man commented, it looks like they got Doc Ock back online. He shot a web line at the catwalk's railing, and was swinging down to the cavern floor on it before Carol even had a chance to give the order. Damn it, the kid didn't even have any weapons, just his stupid webs. Simon, she started. Already on it, he said, as he lowered his body, disintegrating into a haze of ionic energy. Without the sunglasses, his eyes glowed the lurid red of a neon sign. Carol flew down to the floor after him, leaving Clint to follow behind them on the stairs. Fighting the human guards was barely even a challenge. Unlike the Argonians, they weren't armed with plasma guns, so they had no way to really hurt her, and the same vitamin deficiency that had affected Tony and Clint had left half of them just as debilitated as the poisoned Argonians. With the Avengers' additional firepower added to the scientists' effort, the fight was over in minutes. Carol cold-cocked the last of the human guards with the butt of her gun. All of his buddies had already either gone down or surrendered, and nodded to Clint. Get their weapons. Start giving them out to the scientists. Clint, however, was staring at the huddle of grey-uniformed Argonians, who'd been backed against one of the giant turbines by Doc Ock and a pair of scientists wielding confiscated plasma guns. What about them? Carol winced. They don't surrender. She didn't finish the thought, because what it entailed wasn't something she wanted to contemplate, let alone do. Clint shook his head. That's the warrior cast. These guys are different. I could tie them up and hang them from the ceiling, Spider-Man offered, holding out one wrist. It'll clean me out of web fluid, but... Do it. They'd made it this far without killing prisoners. They weren't going to start now. Ant-Man said the Avengers were coming. Your timing is just about perfect. Dr. Kurt Connors, also known in tabloid magazines and police blotters as The Lizard, was liberally splashed with purple alien blood, including smears of it all over his crocodile-like jaw, that Carol connected uneasily with the mangled Argonian officer on the floor. We'll need your help to evacuate everyone, he said. There are wounded, and several of us are too badly affected by scurvy to walk. What about the physicists? Clint asked. They're three levels up, he added to Carol. How many of them are... None of them, Connor's voice was grim. The last of them died two weeks ago. Spider-Man looked down at the floor. The spot could have left whenever he wanted to. Why did he... Fisk ordered him to stay... He was Sistavec and Schultz's contact with the outside world. The aliens killed him for giving them false information. Which bit of information made the survival of any rebels they captured unlikely. They had taken Wanda over a week ago, had had Tony for nearly two days. It was probably wishful thinking to hope that either of them was still alive. It's things like that that keep me from feeling bad about having Hank poison them all. Simon nodded at the lurid ball of energy that filled the entire far side of the room. Is that the power core for their shield? Connors nodded. The controls for it are protected by a secondary energy shield. Ant-Man was unable to bypass it. Get Octavius, Carol told Simon. See what the two of you can do. 
Simon winced, but nodded. We need to find out where they're holding Wanda and the others, she went on, wishful thinking it might be, but it was all she had left to cling to. They needed Tony and Wanda. Her hex powers might be able to affect the shield's power core, if all else failed, and Tony would surely know how to disable it, after months spent locked up with it in sight, if he was conscious and coherent, that was, if Wanda wasn't already dead. Leave that to me. Clint was still staring at the captive Argonians. Mechanicos Isimud, he called out, striding over to them. Nice to see you're still alive. Tony would have been sad if you'd bought it. Now, and he smiled at one of the gray-clad aliens, setting the edge of his sword against its throat. Tell us where they've got Tony, and you get to stay alive. It blinked huge black eyes at him. Auxiliary soldier Barton? But... But you swore an oath. You're an honorary citizen of Argon, one of the tailblades of Alulim. Was that actually hurt, she heard in its voice? Yeah, well, that didn't make them take the damn tracking chip out of my arm, Clint snapped. But, its ears wilted, Archcaptain Kamani trusted you. Tony Stark trusted you. Of course he did. Clint said, very slowly, his voice level. I was his contact, and now he's trusting me to get him out of here. So it's true. The Argonian's ears wilted further, until they were flat against its skull. If I show you where Tony is, you must promise to let the others live. Do not feed us to the great spider. We are not warriors, but... He broke off, then finished in a rush. It would be an unworthy death. He straightened visibly, so that he towered a good half-foot over Clint, his ears coming back up slightly. At least kill us quickly and cleanly with honor. Show us where the prisoners are being held, and you all live, Carol told him. But first, you're going to turn the shield generator off for us. A low-level technician probably wouldn't have access to whatever security codes would be needed to do that. If the Argonians were smart and experience proved that they were, only their highest-ranking officers would have access to the shield controls. But it was worth a try. Its ears stiffened. I cannot. Only the Archon and Imperator have the proper fingerprints to deactivate the shield over the controls. And even if I could do so, I would not. I am not a traitor. It glanced at Clint then, its tail lashing once. Fine. Take us to the prisoner, then. But it better not be a trick. Spider-Man stared at the Argonian, his head canted to one side slightly, as if he were eyeing it consideringly. I am really hungry, you know? Everything the two of you told me was a lie, wasn't it? The Argonian said softly, looking at Clint. Clint pulled his sword away from its furry throat. Not everything, just the parts where we didn't mention that we were spies. He looked uneasy suddenly, and painfully young, despite being only a few years younger than Carol. The engines that exploded, all the miscalculations and mistakes I thought I'd made, Tony was giving me false data. All right, that was enough of this. While they were standing around here, this Argonian's friends were probably doing God knew what to Tony. And to Wanda. She had never properly apologized to the other woman for leaving her at the docks, never told her, Of course he did, she snapped at the Argonian, he wasn't a traitor. 
Spider-Man, start tying them up. You and Simon are staying here to help evacuate the scientists. Get everyone upstairs and out of the building. Yes, ma'am, Spider-Man said. He was already beginning to web up two of the half-dozen Argonians. They stood stiffly, their ears quivering every time he touched them. Carol kept her gun aimed squarely at the Argonian's back on the long elevator ride back up. Clint obviously knew it, possibly even had some kind of rapport with it, but that didn't mean they could trust it. Clint had spent months trapped in Argonian hands, totally dependent on their goodwill for survival. Carol wasn't inclined to trust his judgment when it came to them, at least not unreservedly. Firestar was waiting when they came out of the elevator. When she saw their prisoner, her eyes narrowed and the air around them became noticeably warmer. Don't trust him, she snapped. We don't, Carol said flatly. Simon and a guy who looks like a six-foot-tall lizard are going to start bringing scientists up through this elevator. Some of them need medical attention. I'll tell Sergeant Garcia. We'll need to get outside quickly, though. He's afraid the Argonians are going to counterattack. She kept glaring at Clint's Argonian. She'd been shy once, Carol remembered, hesitant to use her powers at their full force, and nervous about being on the Avengers. None of them were the people they had been before the Argonians had come. Isimud, hands webbed together in front of him, led them past Argonian and human bodies, and down a staircase splashed liberally with drying human blood, into the station's lower levels. Some of the human guards had clearly turned on their alien masters, because they passed more than one group of black, uniformed, dead bodies that included aliens and humans alike, all of them dead from plasma burns and sword wounds. Grand Central Station had always been a confusing maze, but it was even worse now, with all the familiar subway signs gone. She thought the four Argonians they ran into, two of them swaying on their feet from the poison, were on the old seven-line platform, where the Times Square to Grand Central shuttle had once run. But with all the walls retiled in different shades of blue and green, and the signs replaced by angular copper script inlaid directly into the walls and floor, it was impossible to tell. Their prisoner shouted a warning, but the other Argonians, their reaction times slowed by the poison, didn't respond quickly enough, and she and Clint made short work of them in the brief firefight that followed. Their prisoner's ears were still flattened against its skull, its tail lashing violently. Do that again, Carol told it, and the deal's off, and Spider-Man eats your friends for dinner. She wasn't sure which part of the whole situation was more surreal. The fact that she was threatening to commit wholesale murder of prisoners of war to force their captives' compliance, or the fact that she was threatening someone with Spider-Man. Steve was going to be disappointed in her. Steve could deal with it. If it got Wanda out of here, she'd threaten to commit as many war crimes as she needed to. The cells were located on yet another subway platform, square metal structures with no openings save for a tiny grill in what she assumed was the door. Unlike most of the things the Argonians had built, they were completely undecorated. Carol took out the first pair of guards barehanded, silently enough to hopefully avoid alerting the others. She sent Clint and his sword after them. It was unbloodied when he rejoined her and the prisoner, and Carol suspected he'd just knocked them unconscious with the hilt. There were half a dozen metal holding cells running the length of the platform, with wide sections of open space between them. 
The nearest was entirely surrounded by a dully glowing violet force shield. It took only a little prompting to get Isimud to give them the codes to lower this one. Apparently, releasing prisoners wasn't as treasonous as lowering the shield around the city, nor were the security protocols as highly classified. One of the unconscious guards probably had a key, but Carol didn't bother to look for it. One good punch, then another, and the cell door warped inwards, coming partway off its hinges. The interior of the cell was dark, the only light a sullen red glow coming from... Coming in here was the last mistake you're going to make. Wanda's voice echoed off the metal walls of her cell, her slight Eastern European accent making it sound harsh, as the red light coalesced into two hex spheres, one for either hand. I'm going to take you apart, starting with your fingers. It's me. Carol turned slightly, so that she wasn't just a backlit silhouette, hoping the light from the door would make it obvious that her profile was human, not Argonian. We came to get you out. Wanda slowly lowered her hands, the red light fading. Carol? She wanted to step forward, to wrap her arms around Wanda, bury her face in her hair and make certain that she was real, that she was all right. She couldn't make herself move. We've already got the scientists, she said. Tony and Pietro are next. Wanda made a hoarse, choked-off sobbing sound and threw herself at Carol, burying her face in her shoulder. They're cutting him into pieces. They brought me his finger. The words were muffled against Carol's combat vest. In a box. They brought it to me in a box. Considering the hacked-apart bodies of the National Guardsmen the Argonians had slaughtered months ago— and their prisoners' conviction that his captors would be willing to eat them, dismembering prisoners seemed right up the Argonian's alley. "'Are you... did they hurt you?' she asked, running her hands over Wanda's back and sides, feeling for blood or other obvious signs of injury. Wanda was shaking, leaning heavily against her. Oh God, they had hurt her. All too vivid images of the sorts of things one could do to the human body with knives, fists, and other implements flashed behind her eyes. The shield must have been there to contain her powers. She wouldn't have been able to defend herself. Did they hurt you? Carol demanded, again. Then, realized belatedly that she was gripping Wanda's arms hard enough that it was probably painful. All she ever seemed to do was hurt her. She carefully loosened her grip trying to take a step back. Wanda let go and let her. She shook her head. I'm fine, just hungry. They mostly left me alone. I think they're afraid of me. Her hands started to glow. They should be. She pushed past Carol toward the door, squinting as she walked out into the light. She stopped when she saw Clint, and then her eyes went to the Argonian standing miserably next to him, tail wrapped around its feet. You, she snarled, pointing at it with a finger that crackled with reddish-pink energy. Tell me where my brother is. You have told me repeatedly, Imperator, how great the depth of your military knowledge is, Urkala said. She kept her voice calm and level, letting her tail wave gently back and forth behind her. Your inability to prevent human saboteurs from infiltrating our base and releasing airborne viruses into the air surely has an explanation. I am waiting to hear it. One of Nurgle's ears flicked back. 
I warned you the humans were being accorded too much trust and leniency. If harsher measures had been taken against the rebellion and treason, your harsh measures have proven singularly ineffective, she interrupted, pointedly avoiding the use of his title. Archcaptain Kimani elicited more information from the scientist who brought the virus in in two days than you've gotten out of those two captive insurgents in a week. There must be a cure for the virus, a way to guard against it. Only a fool designs a biological weapon without taking safeguards. Make the prisoners talk. Nurgle's tail lashed violently. His control over his anger was visibly failing. With Mamatu's death, his power base had begun to crumble, and he knew it. Archcaptain Kimani was far more popular as an officer than her abrasive and hot-tempered predecessor had been, and after her public triumph over Mamatu by force of arms, the army's loyalty had naturally swung in her favor. If it came to a military coup, Urkala and Nurgle both knew the bulk of the army would follow Kimani, not Nurgle. Urkala took a step closer to him, her robe swaying with the movement. She kept her tail in motion behind her, back and forth, back and forth, sinuous and graceful. It was vital that she move it naturally, not draw attention to it, or Nurgle might become suspicious. He was larger and stronger than she was, and her unquestioned superior in the dueling circle. Her only hope lay in taking him by surprise. The poison that coated the end of her tail barb had symptoms similar to the virus that was currently striking down most of the warriors and mechanicos in Grand Central. When she announced Nurgle's death, it would be as one more casualty in the fight to secure and hold this miserable planet. A casualty so great that, coming as it would on top of the devastating blow the humans had just dealt them, cutting their losses and retreating to a different, safer planet to lick their wounds and recover from their losses, would be the only logical course of action. To stay would be suicide. The humans had found a new weapon, which killed silently and unstoppably. The longer they remained here, the more of them would fall victim to it, until the humans had decimated them to the point where they were no longer able to rebuild their population. Once again, Urkala, you criticize what you do not understand. Your jumped-up subcaptain is little more than a translator. A mechanicos could serve her role in the interrogation just as well, and has. And yet, Urkala said, struggling to keep the tension out of her voice as she surveyed his tall, heavy muscular form and tried to decide upon the best place to strike. She has still had more success than you have. I thought Archcaptain Mamachi was merely your attack dog, but I'm beginning to wonder if she was not, in fact, the power behind the throne. You seem to be singularly useless without her. You are the one who caused this situation, Nurgle snarled. You and your pet Archcaptain, trusting and coddling the humans, countermanding my orders. I knew she slew my second-in-command at your behest. Do you think I am a fool? His ears had flattened back against his skull, and his lips were drawn back in a snarl, displaying his impressive set of fangs. She had thought him handsome once, before Argon had fell, and she had seen him reveal his true nature. You have been working against me from the beginning, he shouted, undermining my authority. You wanted our occupation to fail, wanted me to fail. 
Urkala smiled at him, resisting the instinct to flatten her own ears in the face of his naked rage. Nurgle had always maintained a veneer of civility before, openly sneering and disrespectful, but always under control. She needed to strike now, before he took action himself. If his anger prompted him to attack her, she would have no chance. I told you before, Nurgle. I am Alulam's heir. I was trained in strategy from childhood. Sometimes one must make sacrifices to achieve a greater goal. She took a step closer to him, putting herself within tail's reach, and brought her tail up, poised to strike. It was a mistake to let you live, he shouted, his own tail lashing like a whip, light flashing off its bladed tip. I should have killed you along with the rest of the council. Naramsin, the only Mechanicos on the council, dead in an accident that wasn't an accident. Elderly Gudia, murdered by slow-acting poison. She had long suspected that their deaths had been at his hand. A true warrior does not kill by deceit, she spat. She does not use poison and treachery. He had reminded her, Kala, again and again that she wasn't a warrior. Time for her to remind him. The loud crash from the hallway outside made both of them twitch, and they spun towards the door in unison as Arch-Captain Kamani burst in, her uniform torn and in disarray. One of her ears was a ragged mess, gore matting the dark fur on the side of her head, and her drawn sword was red with alien blood. Archon! she cried, skidding to a halt. We are under attack! You must retreat to safety! I will lead you down below! We can put you on one of the trains to another station. I will not run like a frightened Mechanicos, she said, still snarling. The fighting rage that had taken hold of her as she prepared to strike Nurgle still held her in its grip. The humans had planned this, she saw. First the virus, to weaken them in preparation for the attack, and then an assault on their center of command. The scientist who had brought the virus in must have known. Kamani and Nurgle had not gotten the complete story out of him after all. Humans apparently possessed more education than she had credited them with. Fool, Nurgle began. Why are you not? Urkala ignored him as the useless distraction he was, speaking across his words. How far have the humans penetrated? They have taken the lobby in Urkala, and some of them have entered the tunnels. Urkala swore inwardly. We lack the strength to retake the Great Hall, pull everyone back to the lower levels and seal off the entrances. Then extinguish the lights. If they wish to come into our tunnels after us, they may meet us on our terms. She had already acknowledged the necessity of retreat, she reminded herself. This was merely a more dramatic and immediate version. They were blades in the dark, the guards in the tunnel the tail barbs of Alulam. Nothing that came into their tunnels after them lived long enough to leave them. Kamani drew breath to speak, but her words, whatever they were, were rendered inaudible by the deafening noise as a giant fist that appeared to be made of animate stone smashed the carved wooden doors open once more, tearing them from their frame with a deafening crash. All three of them, Kamani, Urkala, and Nurgle, brought their weapons up, facing the door with blades in hand 
and tails poised and ready. A human stepped into the doorway, clad in red and blue leather, a brightly painted metal shield in one hand. Behind him loomed a massive creature that resembled a statue come to life. You, Kimani hissed. She moved, placing herself between Erkala and the intruders, and said something in the human's tongue. The human pointed at Nurgle with one red-gloved hand and shouted something, his voice as loud and as commanding as Nurgle's had ever been. He says, Kamani translated, that the Imperator must drop his weapons and surrender, or he will kill him. Chapter 18 the three Argonians in the room were frozen in a stiff tableau. Steve, Jan, and Ben's arrival had clearly interrupted some kind of argument. Now, however, they had all shifted the focus of their hostilities, both uniformed warriors brandishing swords and even the female Argonian in the blue robes, presumably the Archon, holding her tail bar poised and ready to strike. Steve wanted to be below ground, searching for Tony more desperately than he had wanted anything in a long time, and this was the best chance they were ever going to get to end this. Both members of the Argonians' high command in one room, and only a single warrior, already wounded, between him and them. The Archon said something incomprehensible in Argonian, and there was a long moment during which Steve cursed himself for just assuming that the Argonians would speak English. They used Mechanicos as translators. Tony and Clint had both told him that, before the injured warrior spoke. The Archon wishes to know if you would challenge the Imperator personally she said, her voice harshly accented. The fangs gave her a slight lisp. It was, Steve realized, with the part of his mind that wasn't either analyzing the aliens' likely capabilities in a fight, or envisioning Tony writhing in agony in some Argonian torture chamber, the first time he'd ever heard the Argonians speak words he understood. Damn right it's personal, Ben rumbled, his voice like rocks grinding. The warrior canted her head sideways and indicated Steve with a black barb on the end of her tail. She was some kind of high-ranking officer by the loop of copper braid on one shoulder. How and why did she speak English when the other warriors didn't? I spoke to him, rock creature. He uttered the challenge, if challenge it was. He must answer. The Imperator because with the amount of copper braiding that covered his high-collared uniform tunic, he could be no one else, was nearly seven feet tall and broad-shouldered, built like a lion rather than the sleeker panther-like build of most of the other Argonians. The Argonians fought duels over honor, and sometimes even over rank, according to Tony's letters, which meant that even a general highly ranked enough that most of his job ought to involve sitting behind the lines and directing troops, would still be in practice and fighting trim, especially given how much weight they seemed to place on hand-to-hand -hand combat. Most societies gave up fighting one-on-one -on -one with swords by the time their weapons technology reached the level of nuclear bombs and ray guns. 
if they had somehow interpreted his order to surrender or face the consequences as a challenge to some kind of personal combat, then it was likely that the Archon and the female officer would let the Imperator face him alone without intervening to help him. Yes, Steve said, I challenge him, personally. The officer relayed his words to the others, not taking her eyes off Steve, obviously too well trained to turn her back on an enemy. One of the Imperator's big cat ears flicked backwards, and he snarled something at her. Steve didn't have to understand the words to hear the contempt in his voice. The Archon said something equally contempt-laden to him, her tone challenging, and Steve could fill in the conversation in his head without any trouble. I'm not going to fight a human. Don't tell me you're scared of it, chicken. The Imperator's ears went back, and he snapped something short and guttural that was probably an obscenity. The Archon inclined her head to him, a satisfied expression on her face, the copper diadem that rested between her ears flashing despite the dim light. All the lights seemed to be working at half their normal wattage, and Steve wasn't sure which was more disconcerting, the artificially dim light or the fact that there were electric lights in here at all. He'd gotten used to hurricane lamps and candles. There was a brief conference in Argonian, the Imperator angry, the Archon quietly commanding and almost smug, and the Officer deferential. And then the Officer said in English, The Imperator accepts your challenge. He will face you in the dueling circle. Do you have the authority to serve as champion for your people? What? Steve frowned, shifting his shield to a slightly higher position. Are you an officer, a leader? Ben answered before he could. Yeah, he's got authority. Do you challenge on your own behalf, or on behalf of your rebellion? She placed a heavy weight on the second half of the question that made it obvious which answer was the correct one. Perhaps Argonians didn't honor challenges between enemy combatants if they were made for personal reasons? On whatever terms he will meet me under. There, that ought to be safe. A moment of by-play in Argonian, and then the officer said, with what Steve suspected was the Argonian equivalent of a smile, Good. You have honor to let us set the terms. He will fight you to the death. I'm not sure this is a good idea, Jan said. She was hovering just above Ben's shoulder, her arms folded, staring at the Argonians with open suspicion. You know it's probably a trick. Ben nodded agreement. We don't need to do this, he said. There's three of us and three of them, and their swords don't work on me. We can... Steve nodded at the raw, shiny patch on Ben's left arm, where rock had melted and hardened into glass. Their ray guns do. And both warriors still had theirs. If they'll let me go up against him one-on-one, -on -one, I think it's worth the risk. He turned back to the Argonians, giving the Imperator a broad smile that wasn't the least bit friendly. I accept. You, Wanda snarled, pointing at the Argonian who had given her Pietro's finger. Tell me where my brother is! It eyed her warily, leaning away from her slightly, as if it wanted to start backing away. In one of the other cells, it said, ears twitching violently. I don't know which key goes with which. Carol, Wanda said, 
not taking her eyes off of the thing's face, get the rest of the doors open. There was a thud and the metallic groan of warping metal from behind her. Wanda didn't turn around. Nothing in this one, Carol called out. Which cell? Wanda repeated. It hesitated. For some reason, its eyes going to Clint, who was staring at her with relief naked on his face. He looked thinner than he had the last time she had seen him, and paler, and there was a large bruise on his face where one of the Argonians had obviously hit him. All they ever seemed to do was hurt the people she loved. Vision, Clint, Carol, Petro. I'll show you, the Argonian said quietly. It started walking down the platform, never taking its eyes off her. It was afraid of her, she realized. Good, it ought to be. Walking after it felt strange, as if she were floating just above the ground, her feet belonging to someone else. Until five minutes ago, when the shield preventing her from accessing her powers had gone down, Wanda had known that the Argonians were going to execute her for refusing to cooperate, probably publicly, just after they forced her to look at Pietro's dismembered body. Then Carol had burst into her cell with a crash like the end of the world, and thank God she hadn't listened to her instincts and immediately hexed her into oblivion the moment the door opened. If she hadn't held her fire, waited for what she assumed was an Argonian to come further into the cell, where she would have a clear shot, she thought that she had fallen asleep and started dreaming about rescue again, for a moment, or begun hallucinating, when she heard Carol's voice and saw the familiar long spill of blonde hair. The other Avengers weren't supposed to have come to rescue her. What were Carol and Clint doing here in the center of the Argonian seat of power? They would be lucky to make it back up to the surface alive. In fact, they were lucky they had managed to penetrate this far down without being captured themselves. They could worry about that later, she reminded herself firmly. Pietro came first. The Argonians had been torturing him for days. They'd cut pieces off him. Done worse, probably. The Imperator had promised when she'd been given Pietro's finger that that had only been the beginning of the torment they would put her brother through. All over some human virus they had caught. He told her that all she had to do to end it was to give them the information they wanted, and then ask questions she couldn't possibly answer. Even if she had wanted to break, to betray the resistance, it would have done no good. As selfish as it made her, for Pietro, she might have broken. The Argonian indicated one of the metal cells, its featureless bare metal completely indistinguishable from any of the others, nothing to indicate that there was a person inside it. And which one is Tonian? Clint asked. The Argonian's ears wilted. I don't know. As a traitor to the Empire, the Imperator took a personal interest in him and had him imprisoned separately. They wouldn't tell me where he was. He looked away then, finally breaking his terrified fixation on Wanda. Arch-Captain Kamani feared that as a Mechanicos, my knowledge of him would make viewing his torture too difficult to bear. Wanda ignored the byplay, all her attention focused on the polished metal door the Argonian had just pointed out to them. The metal grill was smaller than the one on her cell had been, and too high up for her to see through, made for Argonian eyes rather than her own. Please, she thought, please be alive. Her stomach twisted painfully, and for a single hysterical moment, she wanted to beg Carol not to open the door, because as long as it stayed closed, as long as she didn't have to see, it meant that Petro wasn't... Open it, she said. Carol slammed a gloved fist directly into the center of the door, the metal warping under the impact. Then she hit it again, 
and the upper hinge tore loose, the door hanging at an angle, bent nearly in half. Wanda threw a hex sphere at it, increasing the probability that the remaining damaged hinge would break under the additional weight, and the door fell inward with metallic clang. For a long moment, she didn't recognize the body hanging limply from the shackles set in the cell's far wall. She ought to have felt pity or sorrow, but in that split second, when the battered and blood-covered features refused to add up to anything familiar, all she could feel was relief, followed by a sharp pang of disappointment. She was about to round on the Argonian, to accuse him of deliberately lying to them, when she realized that the man hanging motionless inside the cell did not have brown hair, as she'd initially thought. His hair was matted with dried blood. When she took a step further into the cell, surrounding one upraised hand with chaos energy to give herself light, the handful of locks that were still clean gleamed pure white. Wanda stumbled backwards out of the cell, fighting the urge to throw up. The platform seemed to tilt and lurch under her, and there was a ringing sound in her ears. No, no, no. Petro couldn't be. Is he in there? Clint's voice came to her as if from a great distance. Wanda shook her head. What do you mean? Is it empty? Did they move him? Carol moved forward into the cell doorway. Oh my god. She breathed. Clint, get in here. I'm going to need help getting him down. No! Wanda snapped, the world coming back into clarity with a sudden cold jolt. Don't touch him! Nobody touches him! It had always been just the two of them, right from the beginning. No one but Wanda had ever taken care of Petro, and he'd taken care of her, always, even when he'd been cruel to her, after she'd fallen in love with Vision. It had only been because he loved her, because he'd been afraid that Vision, as an android, wouldn't be able to love her back, or that if Vision did return her feelings, Wanda would leave Pietro all alone, like their mother had when she'd died, like Django had when he'd sent them away for their own safety, like Magneto had, using them only to further his crusade against humans, like Crystal had, rubbing his nose in her infidelity before divorcing him. He had trusted her, had come into New York, put himself in danger for her, and the Argonians had taken him and hurt him, and butchered him while she had only been yards away, completely unable to stop them. Like their mother, burned to death in a fire her own powers had started. Like Vision, taken from their bed while she slept obliviously next to him. Like her children, screaming as they were absorbed back into Mephisto, while she stood there, helpless, unable to save them. All because of her. All because she had lost control, had stood by uselessly, had failed to create her children properly, because she had gotten Pietro captured, and had ignored their demands for information, even when they brought her proof of what they were doing to him. She should have told them something, anything. She should have made up something to tell them. Let us bring him out of there for you, Carol said. Her voice sounded strange. You shouldn't have to do it. They killed him, Wanda said, her voice seeming to belong to someone else. She could feel power filling her, crackling in the air around her now, when it was useless, when it was too late, without conscious effort on her part. The dimly lit subway platform was bright now, the metal walls of the cell reflecting back lurid pink light. Carol and Clint's blonde hair stained blood red. The Argonian's gray uniform changed to a weird reddish black. It had a hand over its eyes, hiding them. Let it hide. It didn't deserve to look at Petro, not after what its people had done to him. Just because he was human. They were no different than the mob that had tried to burn her when they were children. Then the people who had repeatedly sneered at them, spat at them, even shot at them. 
than Magneto, than anyone else she had ever hated. They killed him, she repeated, and there was a shower of sparks from the nearest subway track as the third rail flashed incandescent white and then went dark again. We should have come sooner, Clint said, his voice hitching oddly on some of the words. I'm sorry. He reached out to touch her shoulder, and red sparks flashed around his fingertips. Clint jerked his hand away with a hiss, eyes wide. Wanda, he said slowly, you're starting to scare. His voice was meaningless noise. Carol was saying something as well, but Wanda wasn't listening any longer, the screaming hurricane roar of chaos magic all she could hear. It wanted loose, as it always did, to wreak havoc on everything around her. Her hex powers were a delicate balancing act, giving probability a nudge in one direction or another, but raw chaos magic was entropy and destruction given shape. Wielding it was a constant exercise in control. The magic wanted to destroy, to change, to break and distort. Petra was dead. She was tired of fighting. Wanda closed her eyes and let the raw chaos power inside her free to do what it wanted. The Argonian officer had drawn a large circle on the polished wooden floor with a stick of what looked like chalk. She limped as she walked, more heavily every time she had to kneel and stand again to draw a different section of the circle, but the line she drew was perfectly straight. "'It is unfortunate that you rebels have already seized the Hall of Exile,' she said. "'There is an official dueling circle there.' Steve had seen the wide copper ring inlaid into the marble floor when they had passed through Vanderbilt Hall. He hadn't stopped to wonder what it was for. The Argonians added copper inlay to everything. Once inside the circle, stepping back out again before the conclusion of the fight apparently constituted a forfeit, at which point the Archon or the officer would probably shoot him just on principle. Ben and Jan were right, he thought. This was insane. They should have charged in, guns blazing, shot the Imperator and his officer, and taken the Archon prisoner. With her as a hostage, they might have been able to force the rest of the Argonians to surrender. As it was, Steve might be able to kill Nergal, but even if he won, he, Ben, and Jan would probably find themselves staring down the barrel of an Argonian ray gun the moment Nergal's body hit the floor, or the moment Steve's did. He ought to feel more reservations at the idea of a fight to the death than simply disgust at himself for throwing away a tactical advantage. Looking at Nergal and remembering the dark shadows of bruises on Tony's body, the haunted expression in his and Clint's eyes, the look of frozen surprise on Vance's face as he fell, a hole burned straight through his body, the pharmacy owner who'd been executed for helping them treat Johnny Storm's leg— it was hard to feel any moral qualms about killing the creature in front of him in cold blood. The Archon has pledged to abide by the outcome of this duel. You will honor it also. If you are killed, your warriors will tell us how to stop the spread of the disease your agent infected us with. The tip of her tail swished, a gesture he suspected was part disdain and part subtle threat. Tony Stark has provided little information, despite much encouragement. Encouragement. He had hoped, prayed, 
that Tony had simply been imprisoned, that the Argonians would be too distracted by the poison to subject him to the tortures Steve could only too easily imagine. He had seen what the Nazis did to prisoners they had wanted information from, what the Japanese army had done to British and American soldiers who had tried to escape from their prison camps. There had been very little left of those men when the Allies had freed them. You sowed the seeds of your treason well, human, the officer was saying. Either you suborned a loyal subject of the Empire, or you have planned for this attack from the very beginning. If you show such treachery in the duel, your warriors' lives will be forfeit. Steve didn't bother to reply. The Argonians had destroyed his city, had enslaved thousands, had brutally slaughtered defeated human soldiers to the last man in Times Square rather than taking them prisoner, had had civilians publicly executed, and were probably torturing Tony right now as he stood there. Steve didn't like killing, had hoped once, before the Argonians had come, that he would never have to take another life again. You didn't always get what you hoped for. He adjusted his grip on his shield and stepped into the circle. The Imperator moved with the gliding steps of a large cat, his tail lashing as he prowled the inner edge of the circle, watching Steve intently, sizing him up. He would have to be careful of that tail. It gave the Argonians a distinct advantage in reach, not to mention that the alien had three bladed weapons to Steve's single shield. Stay at the edges of his reach and wait for him to wear down, maybe? Steve could outlast any normal human when it came to endurance. How long did it take for Argonians to get tired? He saw the Imperator's move coming only a fraction of a second before he made it, a tightening around the eyes, a tensing in his muscles, both subtle enough that only long experience let Steve notice them at all. And then the Argonian was lunging for him, the short sword in his left hand arcing upwards. He meant to get Steve with it, to end the fight before it began. Steve wasn't going to make things that easy on him. He turned sideways and let the blow slip past him, grabbing the Imperator by the wrist and yanking him forward, intending to flip him over his hip and send him crashing to the floor. Instead, the Imperator allowed himself to be pulled forward, turning the momentum to his own advantage as he clubbed Steve across the torso with the side of his tail. The angle was awkward, preventing him from striking with enough force to break ribs or even knock the breath out of Steve, but the blow was only a distraction. Steve caught the slash from the Imperator's right-hand sword on his shield, metal sliding across metal with a screech. He thrust the shield forward, slamming the lower edge into the Argonian's thighs, then twisted away, disengaging. The Imperator was good, fast, and every bit as strong as he looked. His reach was easily longer than Steve's, even discounting the tail, and any time spent behind a desk clearly hadn't atrophied his fighting skills in the slightest. But Steve had fought opponents larger and stronger than him in the past, and won. And he would win this time. The stakes were too high not to. 
He hefted his shield slightly higher, his eyes on the center of the Imperator's body as they circled one another again, watching for any shifts in weight that would tell him the Imperator was about to launch another attack. His options were limited. If he threw his shield, he'd be left with nothing with which to block the Imperator's blows. He would have to fight defensively to let the Imperator come to him and hopefully wear himself out. At least he was male, so Steve didn't have to worry about being poisoned by his tail on top of everything else. Hank had given each of them a vial of antivenom, but it would do Steve little good in the middle of a fight. The Imperator said something in Argonian, the tone clearly scornful. The words were directed at the Archon, not at Steve. Steve was in motion before he'd finished the sentence, taking advantage of the slight shift in the Argonian's attention and lashing out with one foot. His kick landed solidly on the Imperator's right wrist, and the Imperator's hand sprang open, his sword hitting the floor with a loud clatter. Steve kicked it away, watching it go spinning out of the circle, and jumped back out of reach. Not quickly enough. The Imperator snarled angrily at him, tail whipping toward him in downward strike. Steve twisted sideways as he saw the motion out of the corner of his eye, but he couldn't avoid the blow entirely. The Imperator's tail blade carved a long line down his ribcage, only partly hindered by the scale mail and leather. He could feel blood beginning to trickle slowly down his side as he danced away, but the injury didn't hurt yet. It would, he knew. The Archon made a cool, slightly mocking observation in Argonian, and the Imperator's ears went flat. Steve was starting to get the impression that he was of only incidental importance in this fight, that the real enemy, for the two of them, was each other. Did the Archon actually want the Imperator to lose? That was insane. Don't look at her, you fur-covered Nazi wannabe, he snarled silently, as he and the Imperator slowly circled each other. I'm the one who's going to kill you. The Imperator charged again, leading with his left foot this time and slashing at Steve with his remaining sword. Steve threw himself backwards, bending back at the waist and letting the blade pass cleanly over his head and silently thanking Tony for all those sparring matches. He could fight left-handed opponents as easily as right-handed ones now, after years of practice against Tony. Tony, no. He could worry about him later. Now, he had to concentrate on survival. He blocked the Imperator's next blow, and the next, jumping to avoid a low swipe of the Argonian's tail as he tried to knock Steve's feet out from under him. The Argonian was slightly off balance as he recovered from each lunge, but Steve couldn't afford to close with him to take advantage of it. If he tried any unarmed combat moves, the Imperator could pin him easily under his seven-foot bulk and rip out his throat with his fangs. He'd seen one of them do it when they'd taken the lobby. The Imperator struck only with his hands and tail. Argonians didn't kick unless they had you on the ground, and Steve's first kick had caught him off guard. Now, though, the element of surprise was gone. This time, when the Imperator moved closer and Steve pivoted on the ball of his right foot and drove his left foot into the Argonian's stomach, he managed to grab Steve's ankle and pull even as he folded up in pain. 
Steve had been expecting the move. He let the momentum carry him forwards and slammed his shield into the Imperator's face with his right hand, even as he grabbed for the short sword the Imperator was driving up towards his groin with his left. They had figured out the location of the femoral artery in humans, obviously. That, or he was guessing based on the fact that the Argonians had a major blood vessel in almost the same spot. Steve gritted his teeth, muscles locking as he fought to keep the blade away from him. The Imperator had let go of his foot when Steve's shield had hit him, so he had his balance back, but the edge of the sword was getting closer and closer, and now the Imperator's other hand had him by the throat, claws digging in. Spots starting to float in his vision, he slammed the edge of his shield into the Argonian's wrist, just above where his own fingers were desperately digging into the creature's tendons. The crack of breaking bone was almost inaudible over the roaring in his ears, but he felt it. He twisted the Imperator's wrist brutally, feeling something splinter as he did so, and the Imperator's fingers sprang apart, the second sword hitting the floor. Steve dropped to one knee, reaching for it, and the Imperator kicked it away. It came to rest just outside the circle, only two feet away, but it might as well have been a mile. If he broke the circle, the female officer would shoot him. She had her ray gun drawn and ready, and had looked more than prepared to use it. Steve dropped flat as the Imperator's tailblade came straight for his throat, holding up his shield and letting the blow glance off it. He somersaulted backwards and sprang to his feet again, the movement sending a stab of pain through his side. He could feel blood sliding down inside his costume, making the inside of the leather slick and sticky. His pulse was hammering in his ears, and the world had narrowed down to just him and the Imperator. He could smell the Argonian's fur, the slightly sweet, musky scent mixing sickeningly with the raw meat smell of human blood. The Imperator's tail blade whipped toward him again, coming from the side this time, and Steve barely shifted his shield around in time. The blade struck directly in the center of his shield, the force of the blow numbing Steve's arm to the shoulder despite Vibranium's ability to deflect kinetic force and shattered into pieces. For a long moment, it seemed as if no one moved. Then the Imperator swung his tail at Steve again, this time like a club. Steve ducked and rolled under the limb, avoiding a broadside blow that would have crushed his ribs, and grabbed for the largest shard of the broken tail blade, ignoring the sting as the edges sliced through his gloves and into his fingers. He came up inside the circle of the Imperator's tail, shard of metal in hand, and exploded to his feet, stabbing upward with the blade fragment with the entire force of his body behind his hand. The blade sank into the Imperator's throat, and hot purple blood gushed over Steve's fingers, in his face, everywhere. The Imperator collapsed to his knees, clutching at his throat, tail flailing wildly. Steve took a step back out of range and watched as he slowly sagged to the floor, going still. After a moment, the gush of arterial blood slowed. He hadn't killed anyone in cold blood in a long, long time. Not since Germany. 
not unless the Argonians who had died in the bombing and attacks he'd planned counted, or the ones who had died from Hank's poison. No one moved. Steve's mouth was full of metallic taste of alien blood, the smell and taste making him feel sick, and the only sound in the room was his panting breaths and the pulse he could still hear pounding in his ears. Then there was a bright flash, the world vanishing in an explosion of red and white light and scream of static and breaking glass as every light bulb in the room exploded. Wanda was almost too bright to look at, her hair floating around her head as if she were underwater, and the air around her crackling with red, pink, and black lightning that Carol knew must be chaos energy. Clint and their Argonian prisoner had thrown themselves to the subway platform, the Argonian covering its huge black eyes with both hands. Lightning was dancing in sheets between the third rail and the ceiling, arcing from one metal holding cell to another. Things in the corner of her vision were bending like a funhouse mirror, as if reality were warping at the edges. Wanda! she shouted, and the screaming, roaring sound of the magic swallowed her voice completely. She couldn't even hear herself. Stop it! You're going to kill us! Or at least kill Clint. Carol couldn't be electrocuted, or fried, or zapped by anything other than the Argonians' force fields and plasma guns. So why, she thought, was she still standing there? Wanda wasn't going to snap herself out of this. Maybe she couldn't. Maybe the chaos magic was beyond her control. Carol's powers had never been difficult to control, even when she'd been binary. The power of a star burning inside her like a natural part of her. But magic was different. Magic had a mind of its own, an agenda of its own, at least as far as Carol could tell, and Wanda had been possessed by it before. Carol took a step forward, then another, ignoring the energy swirling around her. It was like trying to move in multiple Gs, her arms and legs feeling impossibly heavy. The closer she got to Wanda, the harder it was to keep moving. It was like wading through syrup, and energy burned around her with every step. So much power that the air burned with it. Carol should feel stronger, more energized with every step as her body absorbed the ambient energy out of the air. Magic appeared to be yet another kind of energy she couldn't absorb. Like the plasma gun's blasts. Wanda's eyes blazed with pink light, and her skin glowed as if lit from within. Lines of pink and red lightning danced over it, and Carol just knew that touching her was going to hurt. She was like some kind of ancient goddess, beautiful and terrible in a way that hurt to look at. You have to stop this, Carol shouted again. She'd been jealous of Wanda, with her perfect control of her powers, more at ease and secure in her powers than she'd ever been, while Carol's powers slowly crumbled away. Jealous. God. Whatever was in the driver's seat now, it wasn't Wanda. The magic was going to burn her up from the inside out, until nothing was left. Or it would kill them all and destroy the subway station around them. Neither of those options was acceptable. Stealing herself, Carol reached out and grabbed Wanda by her arms, shaking her. It was like touching a live wire, but without the dizzying infusion of energy. Pain flared in her hands, up her arms, sharp and sudden enough to bring tears to her eyes. She could almost feel her hair standing on end. It didn't seem to be killing her, though. 
She shook Wanda harder, saying her name, hoping desperately for some kind of reaction. Wanda didn't respond. Her face was eerily blank, despite the tears sliding steadily from her burning eyes. Wanda, Carol repeated. Wanda! She wasn't responding. Why wasn't she answering? Could she even hear Carol anymore? What if she didn't snap out of it? She was going to have to knock her out, Carol realized. It was that or stand there helplessly while the world tore itself apart around them. She let go of Wanda with one hand and drew back her arm, making a fist, forcing herself not to think about what it might do to Wanda to lose consciousness while channeling this much power. She would have to be careful. Using her full strength would crush Wanda's skull, break her neck. Wanda blinked, the light in her eyes flickering for a second. They killed him, she said, her voice empty in a way that would have made the hair on the back of Carol's neck stand up, if it hadn't already been on end from the chaos magic raging around her. And I could do nothing. Again. Carol let her hand drop, reaching for Wanda again. I know, she said. Her throat hurt, and the blinding light of Wanda's power was hurting her eyes, making them sting and burn. She put a hand on the side of Wanda's face, turning slightly to make the other woman meet her eyes. After a moment or so, the pain of the contact wasn't as noticeable. They took your power away and made you helpless. You couldn't have stopped them. It's not your fault. Wanda closed her eyes, the eerie light that had completely drowned out her iris and pupil hidden from view for a moment. Carol wasn't sure, but she thought maybe the storm of energy around them was weakening slightly. I destroy everything I love, everything I touch. Her husband, her children, now her brother. Everything Wanda had loved had been taken from her. It wasn't fair. Carol felt paralyzed, frozen there on the subway's platform with one hand on Wanda's face. She wanted more than anything to be able to make it better, to help somehow, to take away Wanda's pain and make everything okay. She didn't even know how to help herself. Carol closed her eyes for a second, hating herself for how badly she had fucked their friendship up, and for the fact that she didn't have the slightest idea of what to do. You don't, she thought. You don't destroy things. None of it was your fault. She stepped forward and wrapped her arms around Wanda. The chaos lightning crawled over both of them. I'm invulnerable. You can't destroy me. It was like throwing herself against the Argonian's force field, agony jolting through her body. So much power, too much, and she wasn't absorbing it like she was supposed to. You have to stop this, she whispered, forcing the words out through gritted teeth, trying not to let the pain show in her voice. You'll kill yourself. You'll kill Clint. I don't think I can, Wanda said, and her voice wasn't empty anymore. It was a cracked, shaky thread but Carol could hear the fear in it. I let it out, and now it won't listen to me. You can, Carol told her. Please. Please, she repeated silently. It hurts. Please make it stop. She could hear her voice crack, almost begging. The roar of the magic stopped abruptly, the pain vanishing with it, and Wanda was suddenly sagging in Carol's arms, her body shaking burying her face in Carol's shoulder. They killed him. What, what am I going to tell Luna? 
First Marilla was killed in front of her, and now my whole life he's always been there. I can't... I... Carol closed her eyes and petted Wanda's hair uselessly, not knowing what to say. She had never lost anyone, not like this. Then she remembered Clint, and opened her eyes again just as the track lighting overhead flickered back to life. She scanned the platform over the top of Wanda's head, apprehension spiking in her stomach when she found no sign of him or their prisoner. A second later she saw movement inside the cell they had found Pietro in, and realized belatedly that Clint and their hostage had taken refuge in there, where the out-of-control magic was less likely to strike them. Everything hurt, like she had been beaten or electrocuted, like a hangover headache that ran throughout her entire body. And for the first time, Wanda's slim body actually felt heavy in her arms. She didn't want to let go. She wanted to stay here like this, smelling the scent of ozone that permeated Wanda's hair, and feeling the curves of her body in her arms and letting the relief and gratitude that Wanda was still alive wash through her. She hadn't been tortured or raped or electrocuted. She hadn't been burned alive by chaos magic. I have to go see if Clint is okay, she said. Wanda nodded against her shoulder and released her, taking a step back. Her face was streaked with tears and grime. Her hair was a tangled mess, and Carol could see the raw grief in her eyes. She looked every bit as beautiful as she had when she had been glowing with unearthly power. How could Carol have ever not wanted to see that? Wanda followed her to the doorway of the cell, then stopped, clearly not wanting to go in. Carol didn't blame her. The Argonian flattened himself against the cell wall when Carol stepped in, clearly terrified of Wanda and whatever she might be about to do next. She couldn't actually blame him either. Clint was on the far side of the cell, inspecting Pietro's body. Clint looked pale and sick the bruises on his face standing out starkly, but otherwise all right, not burned or somehow disfigured by direct exposure to pure chaos. Fuck, he breathed. They hacked him all to pieces. His voice was hoarse and raw, the voice of someone trying not to cry. Some of the cuts are still bleeding. Carol shook her head. They can't be. Some of the blood that streaked his chest and arms must still be wet, God, if only they'd gotten here a few minutes sooner. No, Clint said, the words catching in his throat oddly. He's still bleeding. There was a long pause. And then, Jesus Christ, he's alive. He's still alive. We have to get him down from here. Carol was at Clint's side instantly, already reaching up to snap the chains holding Pietro in place. Even inches away, he still looked dead, his skin colorless and his body boneless and painfully gaunt. But Clint was right. The cuts on his chest were still bleeding, sluggishly, but it was definitely fresh blood being pumped out of the wounds by a still actively beating heart. Carol began to gently lower Pietro to the floor, and Wanda was suddenly there, helping her. She knelt on the floor, cradling her brother's head and shoulder in her lap, and huddled over him, crying so hard her shoulders shook. You always make me worry, she said brokenly, brushing blood-encrusted hair back from Pietro's face. Why do you always have to? She broke off with a sob, and dropping to her knees next to her and putting her arms around her again wasn't even a conscious decision. Wanda buried her face in Carol's shoulder and cried. 
Pietro cradled between them, and Clint came over and awkwardly put one hand on Wanda's shoulder. For the first time in months, Carol allowed herself to believe that the war really was going to be over soon, that things were going to be okay. The sudden explosion of light and sound died as abruptly as it had begun, and Steve and the others were left in near darkness, the room lit only by the dim light filtering in through the heavily tinted windows. Something about that light seemed different, but there was no time to wonder about it now. Whatever the energy flare had been, it had lasted only a minute or so, and everyone in the room was still frozen where they had been when it began. The Imperator's body on the floor, Steve standing over him, the Argonian officer holding a ray gun on him while Ben and Jan watched nervously from several yards away. The Archon was the first to break the tableau. She took a step towards him, holding her hands up, palms out, and saying something in Argonian. "'You are the victor,' the officer translated. Her gaze had shifted from Steve to the Archon now, and something about the tilt of her ears seemed... speculative.' "'Yes,' Steve said. "'Tony,' he thought. "'Tell me where Tony is.' I'm going to have to ask for your surrender now. There are three of us and only two of you, and only one of you is armed. The officer glanced down at the Imperator's corpse, then flicked her tail dismissively and looked back up, meeting his eyes. The Imperator's death is a great tragedy, she said, and even through the lisp and accent, Steve could hear the lack of sincerity. It is a loss I doubt we shall ever recover from. She hesitated, then... You have defended your authority. The Imperator has failed to defend his, and it is forfeit along with his life. And his honor. I will show you where your mechanical spy has been imprisoned, and your rebel warriors as well. But I ask that... She broke off, was silent for a moment, and then said, very calmly, You are the victor. You need make no concessions. But I ask on behalf of my Archon that you tell us how we may treat our people who have been made ill by your virus. There are so few of us left. Every death is... I have cast my honor aside already, learning your language and letting a human fight my battles. I will beg. She bent her head, lowering her ears, and letting her tail sag limply to the ground. The Archon's ears and tail went stiff with surprise, and then she sighed with a resignation that crossed all language barriers and meant her own head, only a fraction, and lowered her own tail to curl it about her feet. Her ears stayed proudly erect. "'It's not a virus,' Ben's voice came from behind Steve, deep and rough like rocks grinding together. The officer's ears twitched slightly when he spoke, telegraphing her surprise. Indeed, the prisoner we interrupted seemed most certain it was. Of course he had. Tony and Hank had worked out the cover story either of them was supposed to give out in case of capture in great detail. Tony had doubted his own ability to stick to the script under duress. Tony always doubted himself over the wrong things. It's a poison, Jan said from her perch on Ben's shoulders. 
You shouldn't have deprived your prisoners of salt and citric acid. Did you really think we wouldn't figure it out? The officer's eyes widened, and the tip of her tail began twitching back and forth. Sodium ascorbate. The weakness, the dizziness, the nausea. We should have known. She paused, tail still twitching, then... Your spy was most convincing as he delivered false information to us. I am impressed. She turned and relayed the information to the Archon, and Steve had the satisfaction of seeing her pull her lips back in a snarl. Then her face relaxed, and Steve could read the relief in her body language. Relief that it was something treatable, something with a simple and non-communicable cause, something that wasn't going to wipe out their entire species like the aliens in War of the Worlds. Steve ought to have sympathized, ought to have felt guilt over what he'd ordered Hank to do. Later, he probably would. Right now, though, it was hard to make himself care about anything other than Tony, tortured and imprisoned somewhere below him. He turned to the Archon, about to demand that she have her officer take him to wherever the prisoners were being held, but he never had a chance to get the words out. Oh my god! Jan's voice cut him off before he could open his mouth. She launched herself off Ben's shoulder and returned to normal size, her feet hitting the floorboards with a sharp thud. Ben, break one of the windows. I need to see out. Ben didn't question her. He just strode over to the massive window set in the sidewall and punched a pane of heavily tinted glass out. The room was suddenly filled with warm, golden sunlight. Not purple-tinted or dimmed by its passage through the shield bubble. Bright, unfiltered, natural sunlight. The shield is down, Ben crowed. Danvers' team did it. The two Argonians stood frozen, all the horror that had been totally absent when Steve had killed the Imperator plain on their faces now. The sky outside was blue. Steve hadn't seen blue sky in five months. And hanging there in the blue sky, small but rapidly growing larger, was the ungainly and unmistakable shape of the helicarrier. Reinforcements. They weren't alone anymore. You see that? He said, pointing out the window. He couldn't keep the grin off his face at the sight, and didn't try. That's a flying aircraft carrier with enough power to wipe out the entire city. More. If you're smart, you'll surrender immediately and tell your people to stand down. Sam. Sharon. Fury. Dugan. Please let them be alive, he thought. Please let them. He had been afraid he would never see Sam again. The Archon tore her eyes away from the window and visibly mastered herself. She lowered her ears and inclined her head, saying something calm and matter-of-fact. You do not understand, the officer translated. You, the leader of your people's army, have defeated the leader of our army in single combat. You have already won. I have what? Steve stared at them, utterly dumbfounded. It couldn't be that easy. Nothing was that easy. 
Did that mean he could have ended it weeks, months ago, simply by challenging the Imperator to single combat? Before Vance had died, before Clint and Tony had spent months in captivity, before he'd sent Tony back to be tortured? You have defeated our commander in the Circle of Honor. His authority is forfeit to you. Ben's eyebrows shot up. Does that mean he gets to tell you people what to do? The victor in such a situation may dictate terms to the loser, yes. It is... She hesitated. It is why I lowered myself to beg for a cure. You did not have to offer one. You want my terms? Steve asked. As he spoke, the joy that had filled him at the sight of the helicarrier drained away, replaced by a slow, burning anger. It hadn't been necessary. None of this had been necessary. All the death, the destruction, the loss. His side hurt, a sharp, jagged pain going through him whenever he moved. His mouth tasted like blood, and he had killed over a dozen people today, human and Argonian, and watched his team kill as well. On his orders. Get out, Steve said flatly. I want all of your people to get off our planet and never come back. If you don't, we'll ensure that every water source you drink from will be poisoned, and that every nest you create underground will be blasted into a crater by my friends up there in the flying aircraft carrier. The Archon was standing stiffly now, ears erect and head no longer bowed. She was squinting slightly against the bright light from the broken window, and the sunlight made her coppery fur blaze like fire. It was almost beautiful. Strange. For so long he'd seen the inhuman monsters from one of Lovecraft's horror stories whenever he looked at them. Vicious cat-fox scorpion things, dressed up in what looked far too much like Waffen-SS uniforms, infesting the subways like the dog creatures from Pickman's model had infested Boston's sewers. They were just people, no more or less capable of evil than humans were, but he had never thought of anything about them as attractive before, except for the lethal grace in their movements. The Archon spoke then, solemnly, but with steel evident beneath her words. "'We will leave,' the officer translated. "'You do not have to destroy your world to keep us from possessing it.' That would be waste, and there's been too much of that already. I will take the remainder of my people and go. For too long, we have squandered everything that is left to us in a futile attempt to recapture our former glory. All it has brought us is more death and failure. Our empire is lost to us. We will leave and build a new empire elsewhere with our own hands and tails. That was it? Steve stared at her, knowing he ought to be thinking more quickly, taking control, but... They were surrendering just like that? He had expected every last one of them to fight to the death, a bloodbath that would have put Iwo Jima and Okinawa to shame. They slaughtered prisoners. They never let themselves live to be captured. 
He had been so sure that this was going to end in a massacre, or a futile last stand, with victory won by bloody inches, made possible only because Hank's poison had weakened them enough to make such wholesale slaughter and butchery possible. What if he, Jan, and Ben hadn't tracked the Archon and Imperator down and confronted them? There would have been so much needless death. There had been so much of it already. Steve ground his teeth, anger smoldering dully inside him. The Argonians had butchered hundreds of people in New York alone, and now their leader thought that they could just leave, as if all the bloodshed and war crimes and destruction were nothing. And he was going to stand there and accept her surrender and let them go, all of them, because what else could he do? What else was there to do? Did the end of a war always feel this empty? Even the grim satisfaction he had expected when he had stepped into the ring with the Imperator was nowhere to be found, not while the blood was still warm and sticky on his costume and his face, and while he had no idea if Tony, Pietro, Wanda, and Hank were alive or dead. The Archon turned away, her back ramrod straight, and crossed to the room to an ornate copper-inlaid console that was obviously a recent Argonian-designed addition. She pressed one of the buttons on its surface, and a hollow crackling sound followed. It was a radio or an intercom of some kind, Steve realized, probably connected to the train station's loudspeakers or to some other Argonian base, like Penn Station. He took a step forward, bringing his shield up slightly. It wasn't safe to let her contact the rest of her forces when there was no one there who spoke Argonian. She might tell her troops to stand down and surrender, or she might plan to order them all to storm her apartments and kill the intruders. A burst of static from the console forestalled him. The Archon snatched her hand back from it just as Nick Fury's voice echoed tinnily through the room. This is the Shield Helicarrier, broadcasting on all channels. We are presently authorized by the UN and the President of the United States to blow you all into little bitty pieces, so I suggest you respond. Nick, Steve burst out. He didn't quite shove his way past the Archon to get to the console, but it was a near thing. Your ridiculous flying aircraft carrier is a real sight for sore eyes. We hoped you'd come if we could get the force field down, but we didn't know if... Steve! Sam's voice interrupted him, full of relief and joy. There was the muted sound of a scuffle, probably him forcing Nick away from the radio. Thank God you're all right, we thought. He broke off for a second, then. Fury's got enough firepower up here to turn the alien's main base into a glass-walled crater. All you have to do is say the word. Actually, that's not... Steve hesitated, not sure how to say it. It still didn't feel real. They've already surrendered. Jan had stepped forward, coming to stand by his shoulder, where she could hear better. Ben was still guarding the door, a seven-foot mass of rock that no intruder was going to be able to get past. The two Argonians were standing close together, carefully avoiding the chalk circle that surrounded the Imperator's body, speaking quietly together in their own language, translating what Steve and Sam were saying. "'You're kidding,' Sam said." I killed their warlord, and the Archon just surrendered to me. His voice sounded calm, matter-of-fact. 
He wondered if, Sam being Sam, he could hear the storm of conflicting emotions Steve was trying to keep under control anyway. Sam was all right. The war was over. Tony might be dead. Shit, Sam blurted out. You mean I brought half of the military forces left in the U.S. in here with me for nothing? Don't worry, Jan put in over Steve's shoulder, giddy relief in her voice. You made a very impressive entrance. Steve wasn't sure whether he wanted to laugh, cry, or hit something. We're going to need them, he said. All of them. The entire city is a disaster zone, and we have prisoners, several thousand of them, and soldiers who need medical attention, and... He trailed off, feeling as if he had run up against a brick wall. What came next? They had been doing this on their own for so long that now that there was actually a higher authority to answer to, it felt... Strange. Not real. Too big and too sudden to even really be a relief. He didn't have to be in charge anymore. He didn't have to be responsible for everyone, for the entire resistance anymore. He didn't have to be the leader. He could hand all of this over to S.H.I.E.L.D. and go find Tony. Steve lowered his shield and wrapped his free arm around his side, pressing hard against the slash from the Imperator's tailblade, trying to make it stop hurting, stop bleeding. "'Could Fury or you or someone come here and take over?' he said. "'There's something I have to do.'